I sort of saw a man projecting his own shame and, and using the mythology of... to assign meaning to a broken life. To jump down the conspiracy rabbit hole, I think that uh, if you failed yourself or you've been failed by the world, it provides a way out. A lot of people got rich, and a lot of people's lives and brains were ruined forever. We were pitted against each other for profit by organizations and individuals who do not care about us and are enriched from our division. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones I'm Glenn Ostland, and for the next two weeks, I will be releasing a four-part series called Healing from Mormon Trauma, The Infant Way. And these are recordings that I initially recorded with Bill Reel two and a half years ago, back in the fall of 2020. And it's a fun, lively, thought-provoking discussion that maybe you've heard before, but I bet you'll hear something different this time around. But before we get to that, I recently watched a documentary on HBO called This Place Rules by Andrew Callahan. Andrew Callahan is a YouTube content creator who has made a name for himself with his on-the-street interviews of real-life people and all of the different varieties that they come in. (laughs) And he was doing just that during the election of 2020 when Biden defeated Trump, which, by the way, was also about the same time that I was having these conversations with Bill Reel. But anyway, Andrew's work shows a compelling story of several of the conflicts leading up to the January 6th riots at the Capitol. And he's focusing on some of the people who fueled the hate and outrage to build up their own platform and promote their own agenda before it led up to that January 6th riot. It's both fascinating and disturbing to watch, so I highly recommend it. And if any of you have watched it and you want to talk about it, please reach out. I'm dying to talk about it. Now, at the end of the documentary, Andrew shows us that one of the main guys he'd been documenting, a guy who had been very much swept up in the QAnon pedophile ring conspiracy theories at the time, well, this guy was himself a convicted pedophile, which led Andrew to this conclusion. In Dave, I sort of saw a man projecting his own shame and and using the mythology of Trump and of these political movements and conspiracies to assign meaning to a broken life. To jump down the conspiracy rabbit hole, I think that uh, if you failed yourself or you've been failed by the world, 
it provides a way out. And I'm going to come back to that quote in a minute. But here's the rest of what Andrew said and the way that he basically closed out this documentary where so many people's conflicting beliefs and conflicting fictions created so much conflict. A lot of people got rich and a lot of people's lives and brains were ruined forever. We were pitted against each other for profit by organizations and individuals who do not care about us and are enriched from our division. Now, one of the reasons that my approach and I hope the overall tone of Infants on Thrones has changed over the years is that I'm no longer interested in sowing the seeds of division, and I'm certainly not interested in enriching myself at the expense of others. I do care about others, and in fact, I believe now, more than ever, the Mormon scripture from the Doctrine and Covenants that tells us that the worth of a soul is great. Yes, I believe that. Every soul, every person, the worth of every soul is great. Every child that's born into a situation that they didn't choose, being exposed to beliefs, ideas, stories, experiences, you know, life, that shapes them, that shapes us. The worth of every soul is great. Every human being, with all of our conflicting beliefs in our conflicting fictions, creating so much conflict. Because if we're really honest and introspective, that's every single one of us, right? In fact, remember that trick that we were taught to do in Sunday school? to take a scripture and insert your own name into it as if it's written specifically to and about you? Well, what if I did that for Andrew's statement about projecting shame? In Dave, or insert your name here, unless your name is Dave, then just keep it as it is. I sort of saw a man, or woman, or non-binary, projecting his own shame, or her own shame, or their own shame, and, and using the mythology of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any ideology which you place above consideration of other people. To assign meaning to a broken life. Don't we all carry around shame, guilt, fear, despair, anger, pride, etc., etc., that we hide from ourselves and project onto others? Don't we all sort of use different narratives that we inherit from others as a way to create a fictional sense of meaning in the world? How much unconscious stuff are we lugging around that unintentionally creates conflict in ourselves and conflict in our relationships with others? Now I'd like you to keep these questions in mind as you listen to this four-part series that I did with Bill Reel. And if at any point you think, man, I'd love to talk with Glenn about this. Well, what's stopping you? <laughs> Come and check out my new website where you can schedule a time to talk with me about your own introspective journey into your unconscious self. I just created a new website for my coaching services. It's called The Tao of Healing because my first name is Tao, D-O-W-U-C. And the Tao in Taoism, which is spelled T-A-O actually, the Tao in Taoism means the way. So it's kind of a play on words to mean the way that I have experienced healing. And you can find that at TaoofHealing.com. I'll also put a link on the infant's website under these episodes. And if you really, really love these old conversations with Bill, I'll be re-releasing all of the old Bill Reel on Infants on Thrones episodes to my Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to support this podcast in the direction that it's going, please come support me on Patreon, where you will receive bonus content like that. And now... <laughs> Hang on, on your hats and glasses, because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. Glenn Osland, welcome to the Almost Awakened podcast. How are you doing today? 
Good. I know I, I actually am awakened, so I might be on the wrong podcast. This is for people that are almost awakened. <laughs> this is for folks like who are almost. Beyond. <laughs> so you're woke. I, no, I hate that word. Yeah, <laughs> so do I. Woke. So do I. If there's yeah. a negative connotation in our culture, it's almost like, ah, ha, ha, you think you're woke. And, and the reality mm-hmm. is I think all of us in this space know that we can't even begin to really capture what it is that we're going to talk about today, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, you and I are talking, Glenn. You're, you're a friend of mine. I, I know you at least well enough to call you an acquaintance. And uh, we've, yeah. we've talked a few times in interviews and other podcasts. We've had conversations in person at a conference or two. And you invited me to parties up in St. George that I wish I would have gone to. You should have. You would have been just like seven hours away. Yeah. Right. You would have been, been more woke. You would have been more woke. Um, <laughs> more woke. The, the reason we're talking today, you've just put out some, what I think is fantastic material, uh, a book. There's an audio version on iTunes, which yeah. I've been listening to, but you also have a physical uh, you know, PDF people can get or uh, an online. Yeah, like, an actual real paperback yeah. book. Yeah. yeah. More trees dead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the book is titled Bathing with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you first uh, sent it to me and, and I started listening, I fell in love with it immediately. Uh, the yeah. uh, episode one, which was kind of a pretext to uh, dive into yeah. what you were going to talk about. And, and I, I want to talk about a lot of things and I'll just throw a few things out. We'll just kind of go back and forth. Cause I think this is going to be good ground for you and I just to kind of just riff on, but um, this idea that everything is fiction. And I agree with you yeah. wholeheartedly, by the way, everything is myth. Uh, the yeah. money we use, the the stories we tell about our nation, the stories we tell about its founders, um, religions, uh, political narratives, relationships, including I even was talking before we started recording. Uh, my relationship with my wife is a myth. My relationship yeah. with my friends are myths. Talk for a moment yeah. about everything is fiction. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky idea because the the biggest pushback um, is people will say, "Well, I had this thing actually happen to me in my real life." You're saying that it's not a fiction, or you're saying that it's a fiction that it isn't real. Like, no, that's not what I mean when I say that things are a myth or things are fiction. I don't mean that it's not real. It is real. It's just like it's a sliver of reality. It's, it's not the whole of reality. It's one perspective, and it's a perspective that is coming in through your physical senses, which are limited. We're only getting like a fraction of what's actually going on. It's being filtered through our, our minds that have all of these beliefs and expectations about what the world is. And if you understand what confirmation bias is, you know that confirmation bias really determines what our reality is um so yeah I, I, it's 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 um it's playful it's a playful suggestion to say that everything is a fiction but what i what i want to do with it is to get myself more than anybody else but other people as well but to get myself on a level playing field with other people so that i don't think that my fictions are somehow superior to other people's fictions or that my fictions are truths with a capital t and your fictions are fictions because I, I was part of that religion for a long time and decided, yeah, that's not really where I want to be. Yeah, I've got a goal in this podcast, not just this episode, but all of them for the most part. And I do break the rules sometimes, but I don't even want to mention that religious, the name of that religion. I want to stay away from that. So, oh, yeah. So you're excommunicating that religion from you? Right, exactly. Right. I've excommunicated <laughs> it. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but let's be honest. Okay, so I'm going to set, I'm, I'm trying to drag you into a fight here. Let's be honest. Okay. Some truths are more useful, are they not? Like, like some narratives cause harm and trauma. And mm. you and I, at various parts in our life, have pointed to those narratives and said, that narrative is less useful than other narratives, and people should steer clear of it. So 
I feel like when you say that, I've noticed this movement in you and to come to a place and say like, like what makes one truth more important than another or better than another, maybe talk about how you hash that out when you and I both know that some narratives do cause more harm than other narratives. What is, what is the shift and what are you trying to say in terms of maybe, maybe all truths, maybe all things are untrue in some ways, other things are true in some ways, and yet how do we decide the value of those things? Well, I don't know that I agree that there's narratives that are harmful. Maybe. I mean, I think it's, I think you can't really separate a narrative from the person who is telling the narrative or using the narrative as a way to justify whatever it is that they're doing. I, I think that it's the motivations of people and the actions of people towards other people that can be harmful. And they'll use narratives as a way to justify that. But I don't know that the narrative in and of itself is necessarily a bad thing. Like if you're talking about a certain church that shall not be named, like the church of Voldemort, um, there might be certain narratives that that church has that we could look at and point and go, oh yeah, that's harmful, that's damaging. But it's really the way that those narratives get used by people against other people where the damage happens. So I, I think it's more of a somebody who's not woke, somebody who's not awakened, somebody who doesn't recognize that um, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brother, and you've done it unto me, people who don't recognize that that's actually true and and real, even though that also is a fiction. You know, so like when I say fiction, I don't mean something that isn't true. I don't mean something that isn't real. I just mean it's a it's one particular perspective that uh, you're focusing on, and you're ignoring other things. Um, so I don't know. Does it does that does that address your question, Bill? I kind of went a little crazy on it. So if I compare. Um, let me compare Scientology, which is one extreme, and then let's okay. compare Buddhism. Okay. And you're saying that in spite of some of the guidelines or in some instances in some of these high-demand fundamentalist religions, the, 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 the canonical um, verses. So if I were to take the Old Testament, for instance, and it says, you know, if, if, if you rape a woman, go to her father and pay him, you know, whatever, 30 shekelings, and, and now you, she's given unto in marriage, that seems deeply harmful. That seems like something that if I'm going to take my take a religion. I've never heard that one before. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the exact, but there, is, but there is where the rapist has to marry the, the victim has to marry her rapist. And, and of course, every woman wants yeah. to do that. And, and yeah. so there are verses of scripture and there are groups of people who use those verses of scripture to impose on others very unhealthy dynamics that yeah. lead to trauma. And trauma is real. And, and, and let's, you know, trauma is inescapable. All of us receive trauma throughout our life. And that trauma, to some degree, is even passed down uh, in our DNA to those, you know, our descendants. But you, you, are, are you, I know you well enough to know that at least in points in your life, you would have saw differences in value between systems that were healthier, unhealthier than others. Um, yeah. If I compare like these horrible scriptural verses that do cause harm and compare it to religions such as say Buddhism, where it's a much gentler, you know, learn to kind of sit with yourself, learn to kind of be present. Um, you're saying like, there's not a difference in value. It, it really is how these verses are used, even if the verse itself is damaging. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about the different um, sects of Buddhism, but I would. I would expect that just because human human nature is so um, what it is, that there would be sects of Buddhism that would be more kind of pharisaical and critical of themselves and other people than other sects of Buddhism. That, that they might interpret those teachings of of Buddha from a a very like fear based or you know like every 
these things are wrong with the world or this is what's wrong with you and this is what you know and I, I think that's more like what you see with the Pharisees in in the New Testament and that's more of like a, a human thing that that way of approaching reality or that way of approaching from a place of fear and and from a place of um, really wanting to to think of yourself as being superior in comparison to other people and I, I think that's missing missing a lot um, but I yeah I don't, I don't know is is that I don't. I don't think that that's in the texts themselves, in the narrative themselves. I think it's more in the minds and the hearts of the people who use those those scriptures as a way to justify their own fear, to justify their own whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah, I think you're certainly pointing us to. There is this idea that as you become awakened, it's really easy to maybe think of yourself as again woke or developed or ahead of the game, and you can look back at others and begin to judge others as being kind of you know ignorant or naive Not woke. or yeah. Yeah. And and so there's an easy way to go like, oh, I'm further ahead than them and they're further behind yeah. and they should, you know, they should look at more development and read more books by Alan Watts and um, get to where I'm at. But <laughs> but I think you're pointing to this idea that we really are all on this equal ground and we all have equal value. And and I'm gonna address that in one of the questions later on as I'm having the conversation. But I think it's important. I think you're you're raising kind of this awareness that humans are an extension and you you say this in the book the extension of the creativity of the universe we really are an outflow of that Um, and that each human being really is precious every human being has a perspective that's never been had before on planet earth yeah yeah and that every human being is also the same divine and i use the word divine i mean it divine can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people but that we are this energy this one energy and and I, i guess I guess I'd be curious to know for you, what does it mean to be awakened? And, and I'll tell you for me what it means to be awakened. What it means for me to be awakened is to recognize that in every atom of my body, there's this subatomic energy that was forged in the stars that is indestructible. And I'm going to say that that has the same characteristics that are normally associated with God or, or divinity, that it's omniscient, it's omnipotent, it's omnipresent. And the reason I think that this energy is omniscient is because it knows, and I kind of put that word in in quotation marks because it's anthropomorphizing the energy, but it knows how to be everything that it is. And it is everything that we see and experience in the world around us. And plus everything on the other side of the universe that we don't have any sense of, you know, like we, 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 we don't really know, but we know that this energy is everything that's in the universe. And so it's omniscient. It knows how to be that. It's omnipotent because it has the power to become it. And it is it. And it's omnipresent because it's everywhere. It's, it's manifesting itself as you and as every cell in your body and as every cell in a flower and as every cell in a piece of plastic. And, you know, it, everything everywhere is what this energy is. And recognizing that I'm that and you're that and everything is that to me is what it means to be awakened to the truth of reality. And that there's this illusion that I'm a separate self, that I'm a separate identity and that I can be threatened, that my identity could be threatened, that there's death that could kill me, and then I would cease to exist. But we don't really know <laughs> what the experience of this energy is in any other form than what we are right here and right now. And yeah, so to me, yeah. like being, being awakened is like being open to the possibility of everything that this energy could be based on what we know what it is in the here and now. One of the things of being almost awakened is... I've become very interested 
in trying to understand as much as I can as a human being about evolution and about, mm-hmm. uh, about what brought us to this moment and why we react and respond to others and situations the way we do. And yeah. one of the things that is interesting about this creative force in the universe, which in the book you're calling God, and I, and I think I know what you mean, and I want to ask you that later here too, but that creative force is intelligent in that it has shown up in billions and billions and probably, you know, whatever, infinite number of manifestations, trees, dogs, yeah. uh, Cro-Magnon man, like whatever the planet is doing in its moment, all of life, which comes from that source, uh, evolves and adapts or dies off. And so this creative force that you're saying is intelligent seems to have the ability to um, recreate itself in various forms. And those forms tend to do well at various times in the planet's history. Like this force is adaptable, which is what I think we mean by evolution. And that all of these life forms come from that same source, right? And so does, you know, so, so the way that I understand evolution is that there's an environment that pr- provides challenges and hostility and life either succumbs to that hostility or, it, you know, mutates and evolves to overcome that hostility. And it's like this dance that the environment does with these different forms of, of life. And then you've got survival of the fittest. But this energy is both the environment and the life that's evolving. So it's, it's providing the, and, and like the, the hostility of the environment is a reaction and response to the life that is in it. You know, so like when we talk about global warming and things that we're doing to the environment, we're, we're creating an environment where there's hostility that life is going to respond to and evolve to. And is that in the form of Homo sapien or will there be some other form of life that, or, you know, are, are we going to create this uh, environment that's so hostile that we wipe out the human race and then life kind of starts over and evolves until you've got a form of life that really thrives in a hotter climate or, you know, like wh- whatever. And, and the intelligence that is in that energy, in that species of life that's evolving, then eventually gets to the point where humans are. Um, you know, it's, so I like it, it's it's stepping back and it's looking at life as something that's bigger than the human species. I do that a lot in the book with this imaginary character called Quad, who is either the voice of God or the imagination of the guy that's bathing, this atheist that's, that's bathing. But it, it's those kinds of questions that I'm exploring um, that that really sprung out of this religion that shall not be named, where there was a founder who I think did a lot um, of this kind of stuff, like trying to understand. What is the nature of God? Oh, God was intelligence that has been evolving throughout the eternities. And that is what we are. And that's what we're evolving towards. And um, like all of that stuff is really still quite interesting to me. But trying to, trying to do it in a way that reconciles what we know of science instead of going against science. And so like looking at quantum mechanics, things like that seem to be consistent with this idea of a single energy field that fills the entire universe that is manifesting itself as all of the different things that we see. And we're one of them. And one of the things that this energy is doing is creating this, this ego, this radar system that we have in our minds where we're scanning the environment with our physical senses. And that's how we identify. We think that we're this, this thing that is the ego, but we're really the energy that makes us up and is doing the ego and is doing all of the other things that 
we don't even think about like growing our hair and coloring our eyes and beating our heart and doing all these other things. Yeah. I just saw a, uh, an article the other day where uh, a physicist was positing that the entire universe might be a neural network. And I, and I find yeah. that to be fascinating right in line with kind of the conversation we're happening that we're having. Yeah. Um, and Alan Watts talks about that too, is like networks of communication and how we're different like synapses that are firing in the brain of God or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> like in the universe, this network of communication. Right, right. What, so what was the impetus for writing the book? Like what, what brought you to a place where you're like, look, I think I've got an idea here and I'd like to put this down. And so people can hear this, I think, f- fictional conversation, but also real conversation that you and all the other folks who are swimming in the space that we're having with, the, with ourselves inside our head. Um, what, yeah. what got you to the point to, to produce the book? Uh, I've always wanted to write a book and, um, you know, so, so doing infants on thrones and exploring the kinds of things the last several years that I've been uh, interested in, I've, I've moved away from kind of the, um, uh, just, just looking at, at church things and, and bashing the church and looking more at a, at a larger, um, questions of what is truth and what is fiction. And I, I explored, some thing like do you, do you know who abraham hicks is like i did some I, episodes I for infants on thrones on abraham hicks so it's this woman named esther hicks that channels this intelligence this personality that she calls abraham that, that my interpretation of it is that she's playing a game and that it's her imagination that that's using this character of abraham to say what would the source energy that makes up everything that exists say if it was asked this question and and so Esther Hicks has been doing this Abraham Hicks thing since I don't know the mid to late '80s. You can YouTube it and find some things about her. Um, but but I did some episodes on Infants on Thrones around Abraham Hicks. There was a book called Seth Speaks that is a um, a woman named Jane Roberts who was channeling this personality called Seth, which is again is it just seems like it's a it's an imaginary way of trying to. Uh, explore what existence might look like from a non-human perspective or from a from an energy that comes in and is reincarnated life after life but has moved on past the planet and Seth speaks is really interesting so so I I, um, I was listening to this stuff and I was kind of turned on by it and I thought well why not take a stab at it and so I started doing I, a couple of years ago I did these episodes on infants on Thrones called conversations with quad and it was kind of a a, a, a nod to, uh, what's the guy's name? He, he wrote the book, uh, Neil Donald Walsh, I think is his name, that wrote Conversations with God. And a friend of mine recommended that to me. And I listened to a little bit of it. And I didn't really like it. It was a little bit too Christian for my sensibilities. And the, the exchange between uh, the guy and the God were a little like he was lobbing softballs to me. I just, I just didn't really like it. So I thought, how would I do it? So I, I got in a bathtub and I pulled out my phone and I started writing and I liked what I was writing. It, it, I just kind of created this character of Quad who is my own imagination or the imagination of this atheist bather and started posing these questions to him and like, what, how would I answer this if I was the energy that really animates all things? Or at least I'm imagining what that would be like. So that that was the impetus. It started a couple of years ago, and I did a couple of episodes on Infants on Thrones about it. And then I thought, eh, I could keep doing it because I kept writing, and I just wasn't publishing it on the podcast. So I thought, I'll I'll turn it into a book and put it out there and see what kind of a response 
comes. And and then I had the idea of doing that as a separate standalone podcast that includes not only chapters of the book, but also questions that come from listeners trying to attract people who are interested in these kinds of things, because I started recognizing that the that most of the listeners of Infants on Thrones didn't seem to be as interested in this type of discussion as they were in earlier uh, incarnations of of infants on thrones when we were just like bashing the church and doing smackdowns of stuff that was put on lds.org and things like that. Um, I, I was interested in kind of more of these transcendental introspective ideas about the nature of reality and existence. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I wrote the book and published it about a month ago and, and um, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, gauging what the response is to it. Um, yeah. So I- I'm loving it. I, you know, again, I've, I think I've listened to nine episodes at this point, and I really love the conversation that you're having essentially with yourself yeah. in this, uh, but the best I can say is this awakened space. And yeah. again, we're talking about this creative force as God. So let's ask it here. I, I really, that, that word comes with so much baggage because God to at least most of the Western world is this idea of this conscious anthropomorphic, you know, bearded man, but even if we assign a different gender or no gender, it's this being in the sky who watches all things and answers our, our prayers and helps us to, to have the things that we need to get by and gives us challenges and blesses us with miracles. And, but what, what you seem to be speaking to, and I can get behind this, and I, I wonder if at some point we humans have to create a new word to describe it uh, because of the baggage that the word God has. But if, if we believe in the Big Bang, there's this moment where, again, I'm going off just YouTube videos of other people smarter than me explaining it, but it was just, you know, a speck and maybe smaller. And this Big Bang happens. And now this universe that we're in is actually expanding quicker and quicker. Some scientists used to think that it would slow down. It actually seems to be speeding up. Yeah. It is expanding and moving further and further out. It is the origination of all that is, the planets, and, uh, and at least for this planet, the, the life that's on it. And if we go back far enough, if we, you know, I find my father, and my father, you know, finds his father, and we go back all the way past Homo sapiens, we get into other humanoid species, and then before yeah. that, we're something else. And at some point, we're the algae in the ocean billions of years ago, yeah. uh, surrounding Pangaea. Yeah. And we really, there really is a creative force that we emanated from, but, but I struggle with whether we assign consciousness to it, which I don't think we do, and I, at least I don't, but there is an intelligence to it, even if it's unaware of its own intelligence. Um, talk for a moment about what you mean by God, and maybe, maybe we can go no further than that in terms of how we define it, but what, what do you mean by God? Mm. Well, the way, that I'm, the way that I'm thinking of God in bathing with God, really, I have to acknowledge Richard Dawkins of all people, because Richard Dawkins did an interview with Ben Stein years ago. Ben Stein did a documentary on intelligent design, and and I watched it, and I was really frustrated with it. <laughs> but but there's this segment where Ben Stein brings in Richard Dawkins, and he's trying to pin him down on well, how how was all this made? Who created the world? Who created man? And Richard Dawkins' response was, why do you use the word who? You know, you're begging the question when you use the word who. The, the, you know, if you're talking about intelligent design and you're asking me, would there be any evidence or what kind of evidence would I expect to see if there were some kind of intelligent design behind creation? It's possible that 
on, in some remote corner of the universe, there was a civilization that evolved to advanced technologies that were able to uh, create life and went and seeded life throughout the universe. And maybe they seeded life onto this planet and we might be able to find some kind of a signature of that creator in the DNA. You know, this is all what Richard Dawkins is saying to Ben Stein. And, and he says, but that, that intelligence itself, that advanced civilization, we might look at it as God, but they would have had to have evolved to that place over, you know, eons of time through some kind of Darwinian means. They couldn't have just popped into that. And it, and it couldn't be the creator of itself. And so I started thinking about that in those terms, because that made a lot of sense to me. And of course, growing up with a tradition that says that there is something called eternal progression, where that seems like evolution to me. That seems like evolution of spirit, evolution of intelligence, that in the beginning there is intelligence and the intelligence begat more intelligence and evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved. That seemed like it was a consistent idea to me. And so when I talk about God, what I'm talking about is an intelligence that evolved to the point of being able to withstand any hostile environment that could ever exist anywhere, even in the vacuum of space. And where might we find that in what we understand of the world today? It seemed to me that in the, the quantum energy that is potential, that could be anything, and there's the quantum entanglement and you know, like all, all the stuff that, that we're starting to understand about quantum energy, that might be where you would see it. So why, why couldn't you think of, uh, you know, when, when life starts to evolve on the planet Earth in the form of single cells, how long ago was that? 4.8 million? I don't know how many years ago, billion years ago? How, however long ago that was, evolving to the point where it is now. That's just energy. It's just energy that's manifesting in itself in different forms. And, uh, you know, each, each of the trillions of cells in our bodies are living organisms unto themselves. And they have a sense of awareness about the environment around them. And they're doing certain things. They have functions as living things. Um, and they used to exist before they evolved and the, before they learned how to come together and form the kind of communities that now um, are nervous systems and circulatory systems and respiratory systems and digestive systems and all of the things that make us what we are as a human being. They're, they're still these individual cells. And they went through this, this long process of evolution I don't think that there's like a guiding intelligence that is um, making things happen a certain way, but that this energy that's doing this is aware of what it's doing, <laughs> that it kind of records it in certain ways. So what are the characteristics of God? When people talk about God, they talk about God as being omniscient. They talk about God as being omnipotent. They talk about God as being omnipresent. They talk about God as being the creator of all things. This energy is all of those things. So why not call that God? And instead of thinking of God as being this bearded man in the sky that's like a Santa Claus that's keeping track of everybody, is going to see if you're naughty or nice, and it's going to punish you or it's going to reward you, that instead what this God is doing, and, and this came from Alan Watts when I started listening to Alan Watts, and he started talking about the game of hide and seek and this idea coming out of Hinduism with, with Brahman, which is the energy that fills the entire universe, and then Atman, which is all of the individual ways that the energy expresses itself as you and me and, and different individual characteristics. That made a lot of sense to me as what would, what would an advanced energy that has been around for billions and billions of years that's evolved to the highest point of evolution it can survive in any hostile environment. What would it do forever? It would do us. It would do everything that we see around us just to experience it 
I don't know. Alan Watts has made some really compelling <laughs> arguments to me. You probably heard him uh, talk about like if if you could dream every night and and in your dreams you could have anything that you wanted. What would those dreams start off being like? They'd be really really decadent, right? But eventually you'd get bored of that. And then what would you want to dream? Well, you'd eventually want to get to a place where you would forget that you were even the one that was dreaming it and you were having these experiences that are very like real and they get your blood pumping and they're exciting and it's all of this stuff. And then you wake up from it and you realize, oh, this was all just a dream kind of thing. That those, those kinds of stories really spoke to me and made a lot of sense to me if there is some kind of uh, life that's evolving in the universe. What would it be? So I, I, so I like those ideas. And so I wanted to play with those ideas. And so I play with them in the book, Bathing with God. <laughs> you, you have a part in the book where uh, you're questioning this other voice, Quad. Yeah. And you're questioning him about, you know, we humans are intelligent. Yeah. And, and his response in trying to show you that the intelligence goes all the way back tells the analogy of the apple tree. Would you mind sharing that with, uh, with the listeners here? Well, I, th- I think what I said was, um, you know, what's the evidence? If, if you've got two trees and you want to know, is this an apple tree or an orange tree? You know, you look at the fruit of it. And uh, if it's an apple tree, then it's going to bear apples. If, so if, if you're asking, is the intelligence that makes up, you know, the subatomic intelligence that's in every cell, it's in every atom, in every electron of our body, is that intelligent? Because that's a big question, and science can't tell us if it's really intelligent, or even what that word intelligence means, because a lot of times we think of intelligence in human terms, like the ability to think and reason and make choices and things, and we go, well, that's not really intelligence. What we're talking about is the more like DNA as a form of intelligence that, that is the blueprint for a single cell in the body to become any cell in the body. That's, that intelligence is in the nucleus of every cell in the body. And then based on where in the body that cell is and the environment around it, it says, okay, I'm going to turn on these things. I'm going to shut off these things and I'm going to become this kind of cell that does it. But there's that intelligence that's in there. And where does that intelligence come from in the DNA? Um, so the, the fact that this energy creates intelligent conscious beings that we recognize in ourselves would suggest to me that that intelligence is itself intelligent and conscious, conscious, aware, even if it's a different form of awareness than what we're familiar with as humans. And so that was kind of the, you know, an, an apple tree, apples, um, an intelligence uh, creates intelligent beings. Um, yeah. I think that was the, that was the reasoning that, that yeah. I talked about. Yeah, planet Earth peoples, right? And yeah, so peoples. The and it does lots peoples. of other things, dogs and trees and, you yeah. know, but but if we're intelligent, we, you know, we have this idea in science that matters neither created nor destroyed, yeah. And and there is some understanding. All of us can kind of just grab at the at the fringes of it. This idea that if we're intelligence, where did intelligence begin? And could intelligence have been born out of non-intelligence? And that seems to just feel counter to this innate kind of uh, understanding that we're born with. And and even even asking the question, where did it begin? You know, that, where did it begin is relying on this idea that there is a beginning and that there is an end. But when you listen to theoretical physicists, they, they tell you, no, there really isn't. I mean, even, have you, have you listened, uh, Brian Green was recently on Joe Rogan, I think in February of 2020, they did an interview and it was, it was great. Have you heard that? Um, I, I don't know necessarily all of his guests by name, but that sounds familiar. And I do listen to a lot of Joe Rogan. Okay. Brian Greene was a huge influence on me. So Brian Greene did a uh, ANOVA 
four-part four part series called The Fabric of the Cosmos. And it's an, an hour about time, an hour about space, an hour about quantum mechanics, an hour about the multiverse. And, he, and this was, I think, done in 2011. So it's not even the most, you know, it's nine years old at this point, but it's, it's still, I, just people don't seem to understand that this is the world that we live in. It's like we're still kind of backwards based on what we're taught in school about electrons and neutrons being like billiard balls that go around these things. We, we really haven't updated our view of what reality is to where our, our current science is telling us. So, um, yeah, Joe Rogan did an interview with Brian Greene and they talked about, you know, uh, Joe Rogan says, I've always wanted to ask a guy like you, what was before the Big Bang? And Brian Greene says, well, I, there's two ways that I like to think of that. One is that this Big Bang could be just one in an infinite number of Big Bangs. Or it could be that the question doesn't really even make any sense because we're asking about something like what happened before and it may have been that the Big Bang is what kicked off, but what started time itself, that there was no time and that there really is no time outside of the fabric of space-time that was a created as a result of the Big Bang. And if you go into Einstein's theories of relativity about like what time is and the relationship between time and space, it's nuts. It's crazy. It's so counterintuitive to the way that we actually experience life and experience the world. But this is what our best science is telling us, that, that all time exists all the time future, past, and present events already exist within the fabric of space-time. How is that even possible? What does that even mean? So, so again, going back to that question that I asked earlier, what does it mean to be woke or awake or almost awake, is going, okay, all right, there's, there's stuff about the nature of reality that I can't even pretend to understand, that I can't even really pretend to put a name on. But there's these things that are going on. I, I don't really know what it is. I'm just going to say it's all a fiction and uh, have to live with the... I just have to be comfortable with uncertainty and that I just don't really know. And that what we do know, what our smartest people are telling us doesn't make a lot of intuitive sense to me. Yeah. I, I think it was Brian Green Cause now that you're saying that it rings a bell for some of the things that I've listened to from Rogan, but this idea that there really, there really might be again, some of the brightest minds say there really might be like parallel universes and there might be oh, yeah. glens in other places who yeah. You know, you just made one little different choice here and there, and, and now you're you're staying in the home three houses down instead of the house you're in right now and enjoying, yeah. you know, enjoying a, a life that's almost the same, but also very different. Yeah. Um, some of that's crazy. Yeah. And so it's total, it's totally bizarre. And so, but, but it, it's a sandbox that I really love playing in. It's, it's, it's fun to try to imagine how would that even make sense? And so I thought of it in terms of, you know, like I, I remember an, an episode of Infants on Thrones that we did several years ago, and we were talking about like living for eternity, living for all time and eternity. And Brother Jake said something like, wouldn't you get bored? Like, how long could you live before you just get so bored that you didn't want to live anymore? <laughs> you know, like, what would you do? And I, I, I think it just makes sense that what you would do is create TV shows like we create TV shows, except you would make them not, not just 3D where you can put on these 3D glasses and wow, it's almost like it's real. But what if we could add all of our sensory data so you could smell what's on the screen. You could feel what, they're fe what the emotions of what the characters are feeling. You could actually get into the character and experience it from this point of view or that point of view. Like how far away is our technology from really allowing us to do that? And if if we continue to live for hundreds of thousands of years, don't you expect that our technology to entertain ourselves would go along that kind of trajectory? So if there was some kind of energy that had 
um, <laughs> evolved to fill up the entirety of space and be this massive intelligent being, it, it makes sense to me that they would entertain themselves by becoming us and experiencing us. And so what are we? Are we like a museum? It's like an interactive museum that they can go in and have virtual reality. These are all these kind of like imaginary games that I played with that um, I, I started writing about it just as I was taking baths on my phone and then turned them into chapters of this book. Yeah. Some of the things you're saying resonate, which is uh, earlier you mentioned, you know, all of the, our cells are their own like living organism. Yeah. And I remember reading some science, I don't know, six months ago or so that talked about the various organs in our body have their own kind of conscious awareness of yeah. what their responsibilities are and what the functions they need to carry out. And even at the cellular cellular level, that's true, which is what you're pointing to. And there's a part in the book where you talk about you're posing to this voice quad. You're posing to this voice quad that you see the world as it really is. You see reality. And, and then quad comes back with this analogy about the shrimp, the snake, the bat, the mushroom, the tree, <laughs> and, yeah. and how um, I think there's a tree that everybody's looking at, right? Yeah. And in you're being asked about, you know, how do you see it? And it's these three photon receptors you've got in your eyes. And so your color range is very limited. The shrimp, I think you said, has 19 uh, receptors. Like and, and so the colors it sees would be so much more vibrant. And we humans couldn't even fathom the color spectrum that the shrimp sees. The bat mm -hmm. is using sonar, essentially. And so um, it's doing that. And you talk about how mushrooms have their own consciousness, which is super fascinating for yeah. listeners. And, and of course, I, obviously, you know this. But if there's a fire that starts on one side of the forest, the, the mushrooms through the mycelium underground send messages not only to all the other mushroom species, but yeah. they also send a message to all the other plant life, all the trees uh, and other yeah. plants. Um, and telling yeah. them to turn their leaves a certain way, telling them to send certain chemicals down and certain chemicals up that will protect them the best possible against this heat and fire that's coming. And yeah. to me, that is incredibly fascinating. On Again, it's not consciousness as we humans have defined it because we're the ones setting the bar. But on some yeah. level, there is consciousness of some other kind available yeah. in all of these other species, including the plants themselves. Yeah, and, and, the, and the communication that is happening in ways that we can't really even fathom because that's not how we communicate. But it's happening, and it's part, and why wouldn't it? <laughs> because we, we are extensions of nature. They are extensions of nature. We're this intelligent energy. They're this intelligent energy. They've gone down different evolutionary paths than we have. Um, but this is, the, you know, like the, the energy that, that peoples, that apples, that that mushrooms, you know, that, that, that does all of these things. Uh, you, you said something earlier about this idea of the universe as being one like gigantic neural network. Um, like it's all the mind of God, if you want to call it that way, there's communication that's happening at, at all different kinds of levels that we're just not really aware of because we're so um, hypnotized by what comes in through our physical senses and the things that we think are important and the things that are important. I mean, I don't want to belittle it because that, that's, I think that's the danger and that's the trap of these kinds of discussions, which I love having these kinds of discussions. But when I'm talking with friends of mine, they're like, okay, well, let's just call time out. How, how does this help me in my everyday life? How is this practical in any way? Um, and that's where I think I, I, I lose a lot of people. But for me, the answer to that is it, it makes me far less judgmental. It, it makes me far less... Um, like it, it makes me far more interested when I, when I recognize that I am this unique way that source energy is expressing itself in the human form, that nobody's had the kinds of experiences that I've had, 
then I, I know that about you too. No one has had the kind of experiences that you've had. And so that makes me really interested to know, how do you see the world? What does it look like to you? And instead of thinking, I've got all the answers, I know what's right. And if you don't agree with me, then that means that you're wrong. I'm like, oh, if you don't agree with me, that means that you've had different experiences. I want to find out about that. I want to, I want to understand why there's this difference and why you feel this way and come at it from a place of, of love in the sense that if you take the way that you see the world and you take the way that I see the world and everybody else sees the world, even the mushrooms, even the trees, even the shrimp, you know, like even the bats, like the way that we're all experiencing all together, that is kind of uh, the way that I see God. Like God is the, God is the accumulation of all of the different ways of experiencing reality because that's what this energy is doing. This, this energy is creating all these things. And I think it's also aware of what it's creating and it's recording it in kind of like a, a data. Do, do you know Rupert Sheldrake? I don't. I need to, I obviously, as we've had this conversation, you've been pointing out names that I don't have clue about. So I'm gonna have to go out and <laughs> become more awakened and read some more, some more work. <laughs> well, Ru- Rupert Sheldrake has a banned TED Talk. And uh, again, we did an episode of, on Infants on Thrones about this banned TED Talk. It was really disappointing to me because I wanted to talk about some of these ideas and we ended up just kind of like bashing about like what's true and what's not true. But uh, Rupert Sheldrake has this uh, theory called morphic resonance, where he, he talks about the laws of nature aren't really laws as much as they're habits of nature. And so you were talking about the, the way that mushrooms communicate, like if there's a fire and they can warn other, you know, plant life in there. I, I, I heard a, an interview, this is another Joe Rogan podcast with Paul Stamets, and he was talking about mushrooms and how if they come across a food source and they figure out how to synthesize that food source, immediately within that mycelial network, even if it's miles and miles away, that information, that intelligence on how to synthesize this food source is communicated throughout that network. And so other, other uh, parts of it know how to do this. Yeah, so, so, so Rupert Sheldrake, Sheldrake has this idea of morphic resonance, which is basically there's these habits of nature that once something in nature learns how to do something like this mushroom learning how to synthesize this food source, then the next time that it happens with something similar, it's a quicker assimilation because it's kind of like Carl Jung's collective unconscious, that there is this shared network of information that everything is tapped into. So like what Rupert Sheldrake talks about is that if there's rats that are put into a maze in London and then they're and they figure out how to make their way through the maze in London. If they put them in a similar maze in Beijing and the rats have never had any kind of interaction with each other, just the fact that the rats in London have learned how to get through it faster than the rats in Beijing will get through it faster because they're connected to some kind of network in their species where that intelligence is communicated at some kind of energetic level. And that is viewed as woo among a very materialistic scientific group. So when, so Rupert Sheldrake came out and in this TEDx talk, he said, here are the 10 different dogmas of the materialistic worldview. Um, he upset a lot of people that said, no, no, we, we, we scientists don't have a materialistic worldview. We're, we're separate and we're outside of that. Um, so it's a really interesting thing to look at and to pay attention to. But, but Rupert Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance was another one of these influences on me that seemed to make sense. Um, I, I was watching a documentary once that was, I think, BBC Earth or something. It was talking about a mother polar bear and her two cubs. That These cubs are like three weeks old and they come out of the cave and they're foraging for food and they have to get across a certain passage before uh, the ice melts and they're stuck on this land and they don't get it. And somehow they know where to go. They know how to do it. They know they have these instincts that just kind of they're born with. And I was watching this and thinking, 
how do, how do they know this stuff? Like, wh- where does this come from? And so when I heard Rupert Sheldrake talk about morphic resonance, this idea, which is, again, similar to Carl Jung's collective unconscious, that we all are part of this energy, that there's this data that's stored somewhere and people can tap into it and kind of learn from it and have these habits of nature or instincts that kind of come from somewhere, but we don't really know where it's coming from. Thinking about these things just really turned me on, man. <laughs> I'll put it like that. I just thought it was a really cool idea. Yeah, there's, you know, I know recently too, I mean, again, I'm pointing to a lot of these science articles that I've read recently, but uh, about a year ago, came across something that said that d- different experiences we have are some somehow stored within us on the level of DNA so that when traumatic experiences happen, they've done, again, studies and research where they've uh, essentially taken people, followed them through their life, saw that certain traumatic experiences had happened to them. And if they had children after that traumatic experience, that child is equipped differently to handle a similar experience than a child that was born um, before the traumatic experience happened to the parent. Mm, And so the research has come out showing that on some level, there is a stored memory of the things that we go through in our life. And it's not a memory like you and I would recall a memory and go like, oh, I remember my birthday party and the cake frosting was red and I remember the number of candles and and I remember what my first toy was. But rather, there is something stored in our DNA with the experiences that we have that prepare the next generation to um, be able to handle those experiences differently, Uh, sometimes better and sometimes worse. but, But again, there's an echo of what went before us um, I know, for instance, children, uh, when babies are born, they, there's a, an innate uh, awareness inside that child that knows that if it smiles or makes a face, it's, it's more likely to get good care and the attention of its mm-hmm. parents. And so there are some babies that fail to be able to do certain basic facial expressions at birth that other babies can. And, and it's one of these uh, adaptive behaviors that the child almost knows that it needs to do this thing in order to get the attention from its parents so that it survives and makes it along. And yet, like you say, here's a baby. How does it know anything? And the reality is even human babies, because we see it in the animal species, right? We see the deer pop out and within you know an hour, the deer is up walking and moving around and following mom and, and trying to, yeah. to live in the world. Whereas us humans, because of our intelligence, we take longer to develop. But even at the newborn baby stage, uh, there are certain behaviors that we are born with that lead to our survival. Yeah. Um, Truth. You you talk about truth in the podcast, and I think you're capturing it here when you talk about reality. And the only way to really capture reality is to capture all perspectives of the external world by every single person and animal and plant life and any other life forms on the earth that are experiencing the outside world. Like you have to capture all of them to fully capture reality. And, and in the podcast, you seem to deeply recognize that any one perspective, whether it's even an entire species fails to capture reality uh, as it really is. And so all of us, again, all things are fictions, but you talk about truth and quad kind of gives you a lot of pushback in the conversation Um, that really truth, as you know, it, you're, you're trying to hold to this ground of like, it's, it's true. It's accurate. It's complete. Uh, and, and Quad's trying to convince you that nothing is, like no view is. Um, how do you perceive truth today? And what, so to chase down Alan Watts rather than go read the Quran, you're choosing to spend your time in certain spaces of information. So you're making a choice that 
information is either more important or more interesting or entertaining to you than other places of information. How do yeah. you wrestle with the word truth today? And what do you, what do you, what would you want others to kind of think about or wrestle with, with the word truth? Uh, well, what I, I guess what I would hope others would do, and it's the same thing that I hope that myself would do is put a huge asterisk next to the word truth anytime we use it. And and, and what that asterisk would do is to say, we're, we're talking about the way that things look from this perspective, you know, that, that there, there are certain things that are true. Um, but most, you know, like mostly, I, I guess the way that our physical senses evolved, I was watching another Ted talk by a guy named David Eagleman, who was talking about the way that our eyes have evolved to, to detect the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's less than one, uh, hundred what one ten hundredth of a percent or something it's just this very small fraction of everything that's out there that we're actually able to detect with our eyes with our ears um with any of our other physical senses and so and and that like dark matter that fills the universe that there's been estimates of like 95 percent of it that but we don't know what it is the scientists can't really see it they can just kind of detect that there's something that's interacting with other things they can see that there's a force that so they just put this label on it of dark matter but they don't really know is it even a single thing is it a lot of different things they don't know what it is but 95% of the universe is what they don't know what it is so how can you ever make any claim of truth when you recognize that there's such a large percentage of reality if you want to use that word that we just don't know what it is um, so, so for me, truth, you want to put a big asterisk on it and say, that here, here's what I know. What, what I know is what I'm experiencing and what I'm perceiving right now. And I recognize that what I'm perceiving is a small fraction of what's out there. And that small fraction is also being filtered through my own mind and my experiences and my biases and my beliefs. And that's going to determine what it is that I think is real and what I think is true. And it's true that I'm having that experience and it's true that I think that this thing is true, but is it really true? <laughs> is it true outside of my own experience of it and my own thoughts of it and my own beliefs about what it is? I, I, I think there needs to be this asterisk there. That's a, just taking a big humble pill. And um, you know, like I said before, I, I I'm very interested in other people's truths. Like I want to know, I want to know what other people's truths are. And I don't want to argue anymore. Like, I, like I, I don't care about being right. Like I used to care about being right. I don't want to argue about being right. I just want to know, like, why, why is it that this is important to you? What's going on with you in your life? And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier these children that are born in the world. And this, this has been something that I don't remember where I heard it, but it was really impactful that everyone that's born is born innocent and from the first second that we come out of the womb, <laughs> we're, we're misguided by well-meaning people around us that think that they know the truth. They think that they know what's real in the world. They think they know the best way to love and be loved, but there's flaws in it. It's imperfect. And we grow up thinking that these things that we're told are true are true. And so we're misguided and everybody's misguided in different ways. But at our core, we're all still that innocent baby that was born in here that's just been misguided. And so I'm not, I'm not interested in arguing about the way that you were misguided versus the way that I'm misguided. And I was misguided in ways that weren't as bad as the way that you were misguided, you know, or anything like that. Like, I just don't, I don't care about playing that game. Anymore. So uh, truth, what is truth? Um, <laughs> I don't even know what truth is. I, I, I listen to these 
debates that Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson had a couple of years ago about truth. And they spent a podcast that was like two and a half hours. They couldn't even agree on a definition of truth. And then I think they did four other uh, episodes after that. Um, and I listened to a couple of them. And what I really liked that came out of it in, in their subsequent discussions, Sam Harris or uh, Jordan Peterson said, look, Sam, you keep talking about truth as if truth is something that you're able to objectively determine. But there is always some filter between you and truth in, in your perception, your physical senses, and the way that your mind makes sense of it. You can never actually get to truth. You can never actually get to reality. You can only ever get to your perception of it. And your perception of it isn't going to be identical to other people's perceptions of it. And a lot of times those perceptions come in the form of myths or other kinds of fictions, other kinds of stories. So we just got to be really careful when we're talking about truth as if it's like this one unalterable thing. I mean, even our best scientists know that when you get new, better data, you update whatever the previous truth was. So truth is always in a constant state of flux and being updated by better data. So asterisk, man, yeah. putting an asterisk by truth. That's, that's my, my answer there. You, you talked earlier about what it is that you get from leaning into awakenness. And as you were having that conversation, you know, as you're answering that question, it, it made me think of like, what does it do for me? And it, it slows me down enough to, as you pointed out, when my wife and I are having a conversation and, and like all couples, we sometimes get into fights and yeah. our fights are often based on how we both experienced the same external um, stimuli differently. And, and, I used to come from a place, and I think most of us did on the first half of life where whatever happened, we're like, look, I know I experienced it the right way and that person yeah. misunderstood. And, and yeah. it really is messier than that in that every one of us is experiencing the world very differently. And, and we make this assumption like you're a human, I'm a human, you've got two eyes, I've got two eyes. Red looks exactly the same to you as it looks to me. And um, words mean the same thing to you that they mean to me. And, and the reality is that in any given experience, whether it's watching a, a sports game with our, our, our father, whether it's being in an argument with our wife, whether it's, um, you know, going through some experience at work, every single human being involved in that experience does experience the thing differently. And so it slowed me down enough in the last few years that I really try in these conversations where emotion jumps in and people are picking sides and walls are going up to try to slow the conversation down and try to ask myself and everyone else in the conversation to let their walls down, to just soften up a little bit. And let's just talk about what we experienced and how we saw it. And let's try to understand the other person's view. Yeah. It, it really being awakened, I think has made me more compassionate yeah. and has made me more understanding and has granted to others their messiness because it's it's not mine, but I can now understand how it got there. Yeah. Um, it, anyway, just my two cents there on, on kind of some of the things that you're you're talking about. I love it. I I had this experience yesterday, Bill. So I'm I'm twice divorced. High five. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, but I'm in a relationship now, and I'm I'm living with someone, and we're very much in love, and we're both on the same page with this kind of how how do we accept the messiness in each other. And, you know, when we get into to these kinds of arguments, it is such a different experience from anything that I've ever experienced before. And, and just yesterday, we had this experience where she had some things that were going on that were really triggering her fight or flight response. 
And my immediate response was, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not being triggered by this. I don't have this norepinephrine surging through my body the way that she does. That actually, you know, I, I don't, do you have scorpions in, in St. George? We've got a lot of scorpions we down do. here in, yeah. in Chandler. And I go out and I hunt scorpions at night with a black light and a blowtorch. And it's so fun because I like burn these scorpions and I watch them. I was thinking about this the other night. As soon as it feels the heat of the flame on it, it like its whole consciousness change and it starts scurrying to try and get out and like the the movement that it makes it's like focusing all of its attention on how do i get away from this thing that is a threat to me this fight or flight response in the scorpion we have the same kinds of things in us and when we get into arguments with our spouses or our friends or anything else we have this fight or flight response that the norepinephrine kicks in our whole mind kind of narrows our energy goes towards a very narrow range of responses that is going to be a fight or flight thing. And so I, I recognized that she was in this place. I wasn't in that place. And I, I also knew that in times past, I would have been very judgmental and go, oh, you're making a mistake because you're not thinking rationally here. You're thinking with this really limited kind of fight or flight thing. But because we've been spending this time working on being awake and being more accepting and being more loving and being less judgmental, I, I really was able to get out of that place of judgment in myself and put myself into her shoes and, and say, okay, from her life experience, from, from the, her past interactions with these people that are now triggering this thing in, in her now, I can understand why she would, why her, her brain as a prediction engine would take all of her past experiences and see this new stimulus coming in and go predict, oh, doom and gloom. This is what's going to happen here. Even though I can go, yeah, that's not really what's going to happen. It's, it's going to be okay. But in that state, she didn't want to hear that. She didn't want me to tell her that she was wrong. She didn't want anything like that. But I was able to be there with her and in a very like loving way that we were both able to talk about afterwards and instead of her getting angry at me and then lashing out at me because I'm also threatening that they where she's feeling like she's in danger. Uh, it, it was just this great, it, it was this great experience in our whole relationship is like that. We, we, we keep doing things. And then when I'm in situations where I'm getting triggered in my fight or flight response on, she's able to be there for me and help walk me through it and uh, be kind of like a, a voice of reason. But it's, it's more just kind of like, I'm going to let you experience what it is that you're experiencing and trust that you're going to come out of it. You're going to recognize that things are okay. And I'm here with you the entire time. And um, yeah, so, so that that's one way that this this different way of viewing the world has had a very profound change in my life um, and in the way that I experience reality, in, in the way that I experience my own internal reality. And I'll give you two more names and two more books that may or may not be on your radar. Michael Singer, The Untethered Soul, yeah, and also The Surrender one. Experiment. And, mm. and if, if you go on Sounds True, you can get an eight-part series that Michael Singer did on the surrender experiment where he talks about why it is that we go into these fight or flight things. And he, he introduces this idea of samskaras. Samskaras is like a sans, Sanskrit word that is talking about all of your past experiences that then become the filter through which you filter reality. And boy, that, that really changed the way that I saw myself and other people around me. And then right after reading that, I read David Hawkins' uh, Letting Go. And that was just life-changing. And the idea of letting go, you know, like I, I have this conversation with friends of mine when I say, oh, you just need to let that go. And they go, that sounds really dismissive that you're saying let it go. 
I have this conversation with Quad in the book as well. It comes up several times. And the idea of letting go is that you figure out the things that are the fictions, the things that are not true, but you're telling yourself as if they're true and you let go of the false things. You just let go of what you know you don't know and um, don't, don't create all these things that make you worry about stuff or make you, make you fear about things like the, the letting go. Um, I, think, I think Michael Singer asks in The Untethered Soul, I think it's chapter 15, do you want to be happy no matter what? It's really simple. It comes down to this question. Do you want to be happy no matter what? You go, yeah. Okay, well, then why aren't you happy? Well, because my wife said this or my boss did this or anything. Okay, so you don't really want to be happy no matter what. You only want to be happy under certain conditions. You only want to be happy if life shows up in the way that you prefer it to. Don't you recognize that it's your own preferences that are keeping you miserable? <laughs> because you can't expect life to just show up exactly the way that you want it to. Is life the thing that needs to change or is it your own expectations? And why do you have those expectations? And this is where he goes into those that discussion about Sam scars and stuff. So I don't know. It, am I overwhelming you with what I'm saying here? No, no. I find all this interesting. I think yeah. being in the space of awakeness, one of the things that I've gotten really good at is uh, being present. And yeah. when you're present, you're not really worried about the past and you're not really trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. You just yeah. try to take care of what you're supposed to take care of in this moment. Yeah. Um, and, and as we pointed to Alan Watts earlier, Alan Watts, uh, references that the creative moment is now. The creative moment is in this moment. Every yeah. time you ever created anything, anytime you ever did anything, you did it in this moment. It's the yeah. present moment you did it in. Right. Um, and I think you're your best self when you're present. When, when I'm present and, and aware that I'm aware, I get to bring all my faculties and all my gifts into this moment. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to multitask the past or the future with now. And somebody else, I can't remember who it was, but somebody else said, we humans are always treating the present as if it's the past. And, yeah. and what that means for the listener, what that means is essentially like you're always worried about the next moment. So this one is just getting disregarded. And the moment you start taking advantage of and leaning into and being present for this moment, you actually enjoy your life much more. Now, I still get thrown off sometimes. Um, the, the IRS reached out to me a couple of weeks ago by letter. And uh, for our 501c3 Mormon discussion, I did the, the taxes myself. Shouldn't have done mm -hmm. it. Um, we finally reached that threshold when you make more than 50 grand as an entity, you have to fill out the 990 easy form instead of the postcard. Mm. And the postcard's simple. You just say, yeah, I made 50,000 or less and they leave you alone for another year. But when you do the 990 easy, it's like 25 pages. And I, I tried to do the whole thing. The IRS writes me and, and the letters from the IRS are, you know, uh, because you didn't complete the schedule O form, uh, you're, it's going to cost you $3,000 plus, you know, up to 5% of what your entity made this year, Ooh. plus 20 bucks a day, whatever. And suddenly I find myself panicking and I couldn't be present. Yeah. And I slept like two hours as I'm trying in my brain to go like, yeah. oh, what do I do? How do I solve this? Right. When we're present, we are our best self and we bring the most gifts to the table to be able to be the most productive in our life. Um, but it's not easy. And even the best of us get sidetracked by lizard brain when stuff arises that feels scary yeah. or threatening. Yeah. And is scary and is threatening because, you know, just by having a changed mindset doesn't take away the IRS and, you know, they're, they're, they're going to get what they're going to get. They're, they're going to do it. And, you know, so it, it's just getting out of that mindset of feeling like, oh, I'm not going to be able to survive this hit. Oh, you'll survive the hit and you'll learn from it. Yeah. And, you know, like being able to look back on it with, with a, an attitude of gratitude and be like, oh, I'm glad that I learned this thing. Yeah, I'm not going to do that 
easy tax thing next time. And how great is it that you've got this 501c3 that is touching enough people's lives that you're making over $50,000. You know, so it's, it's like taking those kinds of things and going, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to train myself to tell different stories about what it is that's happening that's going to put me more in a place of gratitude than in this place of fear and anxiety. And, and it isn't that it would, it's wrong to be afraid of what's happening and to stay up and, and have those sleepless hours and wondering what's going on. But it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. And it's not the only way to interpret what's, what's happening. Yeah. Um, I've got a friend who just finished a one-year term in prison. Um, she, I did actually interviewed her on the Almost Awakened podcast an episode or two ago. And she went in for some financial, you know, misdeeds. Right. And uh, she even, you know, it comes across in the interview. She was, she was almost grateful for the chance to get, like, serve the time and get this thing off her back. Like here she was, she, she had the anxiety of getting caught and being in trouble. And she goes to um, a female prison camp, stays there for a year. And she essentially says like, look, I, it was, it was almost positive inside me to be able to be accountable to the thing that I did and to serve the time and to be able to enter back into society. Essentially, yes, some of this isn't a clean slate because you're not, you're a felon. But you also get to go back into society saying, I served my time. I paid my price. My conscience gets to essentially start over and start afresh. Yeah. And, and so I think we humans are constantly worried about what the past means to us, meaning worried about what the future holds. And, yeah. um, you know, like you say, whatever comes up, whatever happens to any one of us, and we're all going to have to deal with stuff. Some of, some of the listeners are going to have a child die before their time. Um, some of the listeners are going to have freak accidents and, and have their health impacted. People are going to be fired, not expecting it. And others will be fired, expecting it. Like, like life brings challenges and trials. And yet, as you're pointing out, um, those things are going to happen. We can uh, at least more and more as we lean into it, be happier in spite of what goes on around us. Yeah. And I, and I think gratitude's the way to, to go with that, you know, like, because I, I, I really believe that in any situation you can find, you can legitimately truthfully find something to be thankful for um, w- without having to bury your head in the sand and make stuff up. Um, you, you can find some kind of a silver lining. Um, and, and that can put you in, in a better place to weather the storms when they come. Cause they do come cause that's life. Yeah. Yeah. I got two more questions for you and I'll let you go. The, okay. the first one is in your conversation with quad quad brings up this idea of Dumbo's feather. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and I thought, I thought it was such a useful analogy yeah. because as you and I have spent time in a, in a certain religion and, <laughs> and all of us, all of us spend time in systems, religious systems, political systems, you know, um, systems that are based on country and law. Uh, I, I often, when I learned that a particular system was dishonest with me, uh-huh. and as I went back into other systems around me and began to realize that they also didn't tell the most accurate story, um, and again, recognizing that all stories are fictions. Yeah. But when I realized like, oh, like my history book told me very simplified, whitewashed narratives about the presidents of our country mm-hmm. um, and about other uh, quote unquote American heroes and, and recognizing we also withheld and distance ourselves from the stories about how we traumatize the indigenous people mm-hmm. and the, the damage we do to species all over the planet. Um, your, the analogy of Dumbo's feather was kind of a pause for me because I had to then re-examine 
that just because something wasn't true doesn't mean that all it did was harm me. Yeah. And, and so it got me thinking, and again, I've always tried to be, to acknowledge this, but even the systems around me that I think are deeply untrue and cause trauma, I also have to grant that they gave me skills and gifts and experiences that also brought me to this moment. And I like who I am. I like me and, and they, they're the true things they gave me and the untrue things they gave me. And again, I'm, I'm understanding between you and I that all things miss the mark of being absolutely true, but the good traits, the good skills, the, the good principles that were there and the bad ones are also part of what made me, me and made you, you. And so there is some level of even being gracious to the bad stuff that happens to us, even when others intentionally impart that bad stuff. To some degree, if you like who you are, all of these things have been thrown into the pot and made you you. Yeah. Do, do, do you ever listen to Jason Mraz? Uh, a little bit. Man, I freaking love him. My, my, my partner turned me on to Jason Mraz, and he's got, he, he released an album in June that's called Look for the Good. And I, I've started using that theme song, Look for the Good, with infants on thrones now like I, I for for the longest time i started using a line from a broken bell song that's called after your faith has let you down and i still use that but now i follow it up with look for the good in everyone look for the good in everything that's this jason Mraz song and at the end of that album he's got a song called gratitude and it starts off by saying i thank the boys who kicked my ass when i was 17 <laughs> i thank the ones who stood around and those who acted mean i thank the bullies for all the accidents you know they they changed my life they made me love who i am today you know and and he goes through this thing of like i, I thank the girls that turned me down and never gave me a second chance i think I, you know I'm, I'm grateful for my parents that they divorced when they divided they multiplied it and two parents became four and it's it, it it's this kind of pollyanna view of the world that an, a previous version of me would have been very cynical of and um just like made fun and dismissed offhand but for whatever reason over the last several years um i've become much more open to that and and recognizing the power that gratitude has and changing your mindset and changing my own mindset and it it really does make a difference and i'm curious bill i don't know if you're willing to do this i i'd like to know more about your almost awakened podcast and like what made you start doing this you know like changing what you had been doing before going this direction because I knew that you were doing it, but it wasn't until like, the, I, I'd listened to the most two recent episodes that you did the, you, you did an Alan Watts one, and then you did one with Phil McLemore. I listened to those two, but I don't think I'd listened to them before, but I, it's so interesting to me that you and I have been kind of parallel in this ex-Mormon podcasting space. We've interacted a few times, but not a ton, but we're kind of in, on similar trajectories, although I was never excommunicated and didn't have, you know, kind of that same experience that you did. But did, I, I guess the, the biggest question that I have for you is, are you able to look back, and I think you touched on this a little bit, with experiences that you had with that unnamed organization, and look at all that with gratitude? instead of hurt, pain, hatred. <laughs> I, I don't know what kind of emotions you have with it, uh, with that experience. Um, so, yeah. So two things. One, you asked, why, why am I doing this now instead of what I used to do? And um, what I used to do just isn't interesting anymore. Yeah. And so as, as I've be, so in our and, religious and you were system, smart in rebranding it, I think like, cause I, cause I didn't rebrand infants on thrones. I just started changing the way that I was doing. And the other right. guys that were doing it, like, I'm not interested in that. I'm out. <laughs> right. You know, um, one is that 
in our previous system, we were told what a wisdom teacher would look like. And the reality mm. is that was a really low bar. Um, the, the wisdom teachers in our faith tradition, if I can just be honest, aren't much of wisdom teachers at all. And mm. so as I'm entering this awakened space and I'm listening to really great minds like Eckhart Tolle, mm-hmm. uh, Sam Harris, Alan yeah. Watts, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say his name backwards maybe, but uh, Ram Dass, um, yeah. As I listen to the debates between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, as I read yeah. uh, Yuval Harari Sapiens, as I as I right. read um, Riza Aslan's yeah Jonathan Hyde and Elevation yeah. Emotion and some of the things yeah. he's written, yeah. as I as I read Riza Aslan's Zealot and God, yeah. um, what I realized was my bar for a wisdom teacher was pretty damn low, and I I no longer needed to spend my time and energy deconstructing this little system over here, but instead I wanted to start talking about all the beauty that's all around us that so many of us are missing. And um, if you look at the logo for Almost Awakened, uh, it's it's a person's head kind of exploding. And at the top are these psilocybin mushrooms. And then above (laughs) that are all these funky colors and it's leading to um, emblems of music and sexuality and shadow work and uh, shackles of bondage that I think we all have when, as you point out, our, our parents taught us these limited, somewhat inaccurate, trauma-causing expectations of society and, and introduced shame to us. And, yeah. But awakenness involves everything. Like There's no subject off limits now. There's no topic off limits. If I find an interesting thing about human development, I can share it. If I see an interesting thing that science uh, scientists are encountering in outer space, I can share it. If I have a, uh, a friend or someone who has an interesting experience with psychedelics or, or conscious altering tools, I can share it and nothing is off limits. So we've done interviews with people from the cannabis industry. We've done interviews with people who uh, want to talk about relationships or sexuality. Uh, We've done interviews talking about uh, a music and specifically reggae music, which I think is a gorgeous medium of music in this space of awakeness. Um, No topics off limits. So, so that's kind of the answer to the first thing you asked. And then remind me your second question, which was the big one you said. Yeah, I, I will in a second, but but a follow up on what 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 happened to your audience when you switched from the the podcast you were doing before to Almost Awakened? Did you retain most of that audience? Has it grown? Has it shrunk? Because mine has shrunk. Yeah, so we were getting about um, six to ten thousand downloads an episode mm-hmm. with with the previous podcast centered around you know Mormonism, and so I'll say it. You there. said it, there, man. I know. I said, you said it. it, and. Um, what I what I anticipated would happen was now I was speaking about a topic and topics that applied to a much more general audience, yeah. and I tried to steer clear of talking about that religious system much, and I tried to make the podcast interesting and the vernacular uh, pertinent to a general audience, and I expected to essentially pick up where I left off and continue to grow. I experienced yeah. the same thing you did, yeah. which is that I get about two to 3,000 downloads an episode. Yeah. Uh, and I was expecting 
the, a general audience to start picking it up and listening to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I never thought, you know, I'm not, you know, Joe Rogan's a, a phenomenon. Sure. Um, and, but, but even outside of him, the, you're not so smart podcasts, a radio lab, yeah. um, this American life, those podcasts are phenomenal and they have a professional production team from the beginning, helping them research these topics and adding sound effects. Sure. And I, I just yeah. knew it could never be that. But what I hoped was, Maybe I can get to 10,000 listens an episode, 15 to 20,000 listens an episode. And that's still the hope. But the reality is, like you said, uh, downloads have gone down. And I don't think the listeners from our previous work, when you're talking specifically about the conundrums within a religious system, I think most of those people, this stuff doesn't interest them. They haven't moved maybe to this space yet. They still want, you know, it's still that Fowler stage four where they just want to be reaffirmed that their deconstruction was true. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's part. Yeah, and I, and I don't think that there's as many people that would even be interested in moving into this space. Um, you know, even even my my fellow infants that I podcasted with, there's there's a few of them that are interested in this kind of space, but most of them aren't. And they've just moved on to other things and like religion or spirituality or these kinds of things just really aren't even that important interesting to them. And I, I think the audience, um, but like, I, I really don't even know who my audience is with infants on thrones anymore. And that's kind of sad because I, you know, I've been doing it for eight years and it's changed a lot over the years. And I, I used to really love doing these surveys and getting to know who the audience was and doing listener essays and having them submit stuff. And yeah, I, I, I feel kind of disconnected from that, uh, from the audience, but I know there's still people that are there. I, I wonder if there's overlap between people who listen to to, to me and people who listen to you that we're in the same space, but I don't even know that I have, I have no idea. So yeah, that's, that's curious to hear. Um, I like you know. talking about these things. Yeah. I like, you know, one of the things that's really good about a podcast, well, no matter how big or small is you get to put, you get to say your ideas and thoughts and you get to point yeah. to the things that interest you and you get to do it out loud to the rest of the world yeah. and hope that somebody finds these things interesting. Right. I, I get feedback that the episodes are enjoyable, but yeah, a yeah. large chunk of the audience from prior has fallen off. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I ever want to stop talking about these things. And so- right. Uh, I, I, my goal is to just go a couple of years doing this and see if it picks up and see what it does. Yeah. Um, I was, as I was listening to your audiobook, bathing with God, I thought, man, that'd be a great name for a podcast. And you could <laughs> use the book yeah. as this leapfrog into a podcast yeah. where you interview or monologue about these interesting things that come into your life in this space. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's what you're, is that, is that kind of what you're doing with infants on it's, thrones? Well, no, well, bathing with God is its own thing. So, I, I've done some cross stuff, you know, like I'm kind of force feeding bathing with God on the infants on thrones audience, whether yeah. they want it or not, because it's me and this is what I'm creating. And, and the bathing with God stuff was born on infants on thrones. And, and um, so I, I'm doing some stuff with that. Uh, you know, I, I would very much like for bathing with God to, to catch on and have the kind of numbers that infants on thrones had in its heyday um, that you had in your heyday. Um, but, you know, I don't know, I don't know if this is, that interesting to as many people or not, but I, I really like when I connect with people who are interested in it. And I, I especially like it when I interact with people who can recommend things to me because every single name that I've mentioned, Jonathan Haidt, Michael Singer, David Hawkins, Alan Watts, you know, all of these people I was introduced to because of people that I met through the podcast and so much of my life 
is because is is the way that it is now because of the way that I put myself out there with Infants on Thrones, people that I met through Infants on Thrones, and the way that those relationships developed. And um, so I'm hoping that Bathing with God will do something similar to that. But the other question that I asked you, and since you already mentioned, you already broke the taboo and you said Mormonism, how, how do you feel about Mormonism? How do, how do you feel about your experience with it? And is that something that in your almost awakened state, you're able to look at with gratitude, with love, with compassion? Um, or is there still a lot of the kind of anger and hurt and, and bitterness around being lied to and deceived and you know, excommunicated and, you know, like the, all that stuff that you went through. Yeah. So let me work backwards. The excommunication didn't affect me negatively at all. It was, I knew, so I had recorded an episode that I knew would be the the final straw Yeah. and it had sat in my stored audio for about a year and a half. Um, I just didn't publish it because I knew when I published it, it would be the final thing. Yeah. So I published it and two weeks later, the two guys show up and hand me a letter for a, a disciplinary trial, uh, a religious disciplinary trial. And um, I expected it, was ready for it, knew it was coming. And that's the reason I released that episode when I did. And um, the excommunication was pleasant and enjoyable to go through. Um, I enjoyed planning every step of it in order to push and nudge the people around me who were involved in that process to get them hopefully to just think and reflect a little bit about the process that they were imposing on me. Yeah. And, and so what, I enjoyed like it. Like what they really, like they really believe what they think that right, they're doing. Right. <laughs> um, and then I had a chance to go in and of course it was recorded. I had a chance to go in and say my piece. A lot of people yeah. don't get to do that. A lot yeah. of people feel hushed and silenced in their religious setting and they don't get to speak up. And here I had a chance to tell any Mormon who wants to ever know, gets to listen to what I said and I got to go out stating my peace. Nobody can spread a rumor that I had done some sin or committed some atrocity in behavior because in the audio, my stake president tells me that my integrity wasn't in question, that my issue was that I couldn't talk about the things I was talking about. And so I, I was able to leave peacefully. Um, I still have anger with my uh, previous religious system. I think most people in any high demand fundamentalist religion feel that as they wake up to it not being what they thought it was and feeling the pressure from it to be silent or to receive trauma at its hand because you're not going along with the flow. Um, so I still have anger and frustration, uh, but I also wouldn't be me if, in other words, if I could go back and change it, would I know? I would, I would do all of it over again because all of it brought me to this moment. And in this moment, my marriage is good. Uh, my kids are healthy. I have a great job. I, I love the company I work for. I enjoy going to work every day. I have the best friends on the planet. Um, I get to wrestle with the big questions. I get to think critically about all kinds of ideas. I get to read and learn. Uh, I know what it's like to stand up for others who are marginalized. Um, the life that I've lived has given me the ability to be and to experience the things that I have. So I wouldn't change a drop of it. And I, I'm grateful that as a 17-year-old kid who was kind of lost and didn't, uh, he wouldn't have ended up here, that's for damn sure, if he hadn't encountered religion. Yeah. And so that system, it did two things. It gave him accolades and um, praise and opportunities that were hugely positive for me, that helped me develop skills like public speaking, that helped me develop skills such as 
reading lots of material and going into footnotes and studying yeah. sources and trying to understand what it means to actually learn information and to wrestle with your own preconceived notions of things. It also caused me trauma and it, it, it harmed me and it lied to me and it deceived me. But that also gave me the ability to push back and stand up for myself and to begin to see others who are hurt by these kinds of systems and to be a voice for them when it's necessary. I just wouldn't change anything. And so it's both. I'm still upset and angry, but it's such a tiny little piece of my, if you were to, Glenn, if you were to come and spend a week with me in my house and, and go out with me and my friends, you would see that Mormonism is a shared story that allows all of us to connect to what is the same about us. Yeah. But then what, what really becomes interesting about my marriage and my relationship with my kids and my relationship with my job and with my friends is that what is way more interesting than what is the same about all of us is what's different. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you spend a week with us, you would see that Mormonism is not really part of my conversation anymore in my house. And with my friends, it's a way to get a laugh or a chuckle or to connect But then we all go off and start talking about the big questions and the things we're reading and the stuff we're studying and the ideas ruminating in our heads. And none of it is this previous religious system. Um, Life life got way more fun and interesting when I was able to set that anger down and go through my week really not reflecting or spending any time in that space. Yeah. Cool. Does does being awakened to you include any kind of like forgiveness or like full unconditional love for the Mormon church, for Mormon people, for what it is, you know, for, for all of those lies, um, all of that trauma, um, recognizing like, cause if you, if you think that we are all expressions of this one energy, then these are just different versions of you. And, you know, so so does does being awakened? This is something that I've struggled with myself, and it's something that kind of comes up in in the book, Bathing with God. I, I explore these kinds of questions. Is that kind of forgiveness? Is that kind of love something that is um, desirable? Is it something that you're you're wanting? Is it something you feel like you've achieved? Is it something that you feel like even need? Where does that fit into being awakened? Yeah, um, I certainly think forgiveness is part of the space. Of awakening, because as you say, you you begin to see yourself as a as these folks are manifestations of you, just under a different set of circumstances, yeah. right? Like like you are this other person who just lived their life differently and encountered different things. So I agree that forgiveness is part of it. I don't know that I'm there yet. Um, but when you say that, yet, does that mean that you think that someday you will, or that you even want to, or that you think that you should be? Um, I certainly have moved from deep anger and resentment to maybe a state of apathy. Hmm. And so since I've moved from that to apathy, I hold out space that at some future point, maybe I move from apathy to something else. And as I listen to say Thomas McConkie or uh, Richard Rohr or, uh, Hmm. you know, Phil McLemore in those wisdom voices within kind of our tradition or Christianity at large with Rohr, there's this idea of being grateful for all of it and granting compassion and gratitude to even the negative that happens to you. Um, I don't know that I'm there yet. I'm kind of an eight on the Enneagram. I'm a justice warrior. So when, <laughs> when people step on my toes or step on the toes of people around me, um, yeah. I, I get pissed. And so yeah. it's just not, it's not a, a space that comes easy to me. Now, now, on the other side of that, when I see other humans around me who are hurting me, and I have to be honest, unintentionally, 
unnecessarily, but unintentionally, um, I have a, I do have a space of like compassion, like, Oh, like I can see why that person did that and why they felt it was necessary to take that step that actually hurt me or hurt my family. But I'm still struggling with systems when they do it specifically that system that we came out of. Um, yeah. It's not easy. And, and it's not all the time. It's, you know, once a month something happens and it just triggers me and now I'm angry again for a, for a little while. Um, yeah. But it's not a, it's not a moment. It's not a consistent thing. It's not a thing that bothers me daily. Uh, in fact, until you and I had this conversation, I don't know that I thought about Mormonism one time today. Um, <laughs> and I think most days are that way. I, I yeah. rarely think of it unless it's doing something to hurt me. Mm. Um, but forgiveness, I think is part of that. And I'm not there yet. Yeah. I didn't know you were an eight. That's interesting. Yeah. An eight on the Enneagram. Did, did, um, did, what, 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 what would you guess that I am? Hmm. Putting you on the spot. Yeah. Here. Let me, let me think this through. Let me think about each of these. So, um, you're not, I don't think you're a nine peacemaker, right? No. And you're not, I think a two is a perfectionist. No, the one think, is a perfectionist. The, one's the two perfectionist. is a helper. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know, I know sevens are all over the place, trying different foods and experiencing the world and all it's, in all its glory, trying to bounce around and enjoy everything that life has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, four is the creator and the artist. I'm going to go with number four. Mm. That's what I thought I was when I first heard the Enneagram. I, I am a seven. You are. Okay. I am a seven. Yeah. But I, I'm a I'm, healthy seven. Ooh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when you go to a restaurant, do you like to try everything? You want to order all kinds oh, yeah. of appetizers and oh, whatever yeah. people and are doing, not, if they're skydiving tomorrow, you want to go. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like I, I, I I, when I was younger, I was more extroverted and I'm more introverted now than I, than I was then. And so that's, that's kind of an interesting characteristic because I don't think that most sevens are introverts, but I'm kind of more of a, a, an introverted seven that's comfortable. You know, sevens have the line to going to the one, the perfectionist when they're under stress and going to a five um, when they're calm. And that, that five is, is a really comfortable place for introverts who like to research and really unpack things. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting that we've, <laughs> another, another parallel that we have, Bill, our interest in the Enneagram and kind of yeah. recognizing the value of, of locating yourself within that spectrum of personality types, while at the same time not uh, stereotyping or like limiting uh, where you are in it. But, but yeah, so, so for you to tell me that you're an eight that's, that's really out for justice and you're on your white horse and you're tilting on all the windmills, uh, yeah, that... That, that makes a lot of sense. And the negatives of that, right? Like, I think I can fix the world and I, damn it, I'm going to beat the world into the condition I want it to be in. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be yeah. fair as I define fair. Yeah. Um, and then realizing one day that you can't, you really have no power. You can be a voice. You can be one voice among many. And over a grand period of time, change certainly happens. But the reality is you're probably not going to change anything today. And the things you really want to change, sure as hell aren't going to change just because you, you spoke up and pushed for it. Um, yeah. I want to ask you one last question and, and right. that's about death. And let me frame it this way. <clears throat> okay. When we talk about what lies beyond and we do it in the way that you and quad are having this conversation about reality and consciousness and what's real and what isn't. And um, I struggle with death. I, I'm scared to death of the last three minutes of dying. I think for most of us, that's not going to be a pleasant experience. And I, I often wonder if living present my whole life and enjoying a life well lived really matters in those last three minutes if you're having a heart attack. In other words, in the middle of whatever crisis your death is, do you in the midst of that go, man, at least I was grateful that I got to have all that fun while I was alive? I don't think we do. I think, we, I think you're only going to be concerned about the process of dying as you're dying and only worried about the sensations that it gives your body 
and the worry and concern with all the things that come as you contemplate dying in those last few minutes. So one is the process of dying. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on. And then the second is death itself in that I don't, I'm not really deeply bothered by death. I think it's a dirt nap. I think I die and I think my consciousness is gone. And then I hear people, you know, you in bathing with God, or I hear Alan Watts, or I hear the idea that if my consciousness if my memory of my life well-lived doesn't continue on, if my consciousness and awareness of what my life looked like doesn't go on, and I don't think at death it does, I agree with you that the, again, matter is not created nor destroyed. The energy within me continues, and the matter that makes me up will go into making up the matter of other things, and I will become both the nourishment and the actual, to some degree, material of something after, But does any of that matter if my memory doesn't go on? Does any of that matter if my consciousness doesn't exist beyond death? If if I don't get to go somewhere and go like, ooh, look at who I was and now I'm here and now there's this new thing, death becomes just an end, even if something on you continues but without your consciousness. Um, What are your thoughts on death, dying first, but then (laughs) death and do you actually think some awareness of who you were continues on and if not, what does that do for your thoughts on di- or on death? Okay, well, um, boy, this is a this is a really huge question to ask in wrapping up. <laughs> um, uh, there is there is so much that I could say about this. Uh, I um, I think I want to share with you an experience that I've I've never talked about. Uh, I, I I have participated in ayahuasca ceremonies, and I I did that probably the first time was I don't know was it two and a half years ago probably. And I had this experience with ayahuasca where I was really like, I, I, I drank this stuff. And, and for people who don't know, ayahuasca is it's DMT is the chemical that interacts with your brain and it's ingested through your, uh, through your stomach, through your liver. And there's an MOA inhibitor. So it's kind of a slow uptake and it's maybe like a four hour experience, something like that. And you start feeling the effects of it maybe within 20 or 30 minutes of drinking it. And I was doing it in a setting where there was a shaman and there were other groups of people and we're around in a circle and everybody's kind of within their own experience. And I started feeling the effects coming on and it was coming on in a way that I didn't like because I like staying lucid. I like being aware. I don't want to be overtaken by some kind of psychedelic substance where I'm not in control. And I started feeling this thing come on really, really strong. And this was maybe the fourth, yeah, I think it's probably the fourth time I had taken it. And I just was struggling with it. And I was thinking, why did I do this? I don't ever want to do this again. I, I stood up and I walked away from the circle and I went into a bathroom in the place that we were in. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to be alone right now. I went back out where there were people and I was just like kind of sitting there and I was like turning this way and that and just like struggling. I just, you know, real struggle. I'm never going to do this again. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And I, I remembered what people kept telling me to just like breathe relax, go into it. You're going to be fine. I had had fine experiences before. This was the fourth time, fourth time I had tried it. So finally, after maybe 15 minutes of this really intense struggle, it was like Joseph Smith in the garden, <laughs> or in, the, in the grove with like Satan coming over. You know, that's what I felt like. Finally, I relaxed into it and all of that terror went away. And I started having a conversation with myself. That's very similar. Like I've kind of recreated that experience in bathing with God. So if you want to call it an inner self or just like this imaginary guide or whatever it was, this voice came to me and said, that was interesting. What was that all about? 
what was all that struggle about? And I'm like, I've heard about ego death and I don't want ego death. I don't want to die. I don't want to be erased from reality. I, I don't want to disappear. I don't want ego death. And the response came back with like, oh, that's, that's cute. That's funny. So you think that you can control that, do you? you? You think that you're in charge of that and you think that it's a death? Well, what if it's not a death? What if what we're doing right here is a marriage? What if what we're doing is, is the egoic part of you is loosening up and it's surrendering and it's becoming more in line with the part of you that is divine and the part of you that knows much more about what's going on in this world than this e- egoic radar system of your physical senses that you most identify with? What if this is a marriage? And um, you know the things that we can do together in harmony with each other are, are much greater than anything if you're struggling against it or if you're you know, afraid of your own mortality and your, your, your death. Um, that was a really, really profound experience for me, Bill. Really profound, really life-changing. And I, <laughs> where, where I immediately went to with that is I had, because I, I, I felt like I was having this conversation with my inner self, whatever, whatever that inner self is. And then I'm like, oh, I, I want to have a conversation with my ex-wife's inner self. <laughs> so then we had this conversation and I was, you know, and it's all happening within my own imagination. I'm perfectly comfortable seeing it that way, but it felt so cathartic and healing to have these conversations with her and this forgiveness that happened with her and the conflicts that we had. And I'm like, oh yeah, I could see why I was really stubborn in these areas. And you were really stubborn in these areas and it just didn't work out. And, you know, but we've got these kids and all, you know, so, so I had that experience and the, the experiences that I've had with ayahuasca since then, I haven't, I haven't ever experienced that same kind of terror. So I don't, I don't know what those three minutes that you said, I don't know what the, 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 the minutes, preceding death are going to be like. But I'm not as afraid of that as I used to be because of this experience. I, I'm, you know, if, if it does turn out that I just take a dirt nap and there is no consciousness after that, I made peace with that a long time ago. I, I made, then what is there to worry about? There's no pain, there's no suffering. It's just peaceful oblivion, which it was before I was born, which it will be after I'm dead. I've got no fear of that. That's great. That, you know, the only thing I really want to be concerned of is have, have I, like, do I have a, a will in place that my kids will be taken care of, you know, or something like that. But, you know, like as far as, as, as me passing, I don't, I don't have any fear of, the, of that. Um, I, I don't want it to be something where I'm tortured and I'm suffering a lot of pain. But I also, I also have heard accounts of people who have had, have reported near-death experiences and something happens with their consciousness where they're aware that they're in a car accident and there's all these horrible things that are going on around them, but they're not really feeling the pain. They're, they're kind of like outside of it, experiencing it from outside. So maybe there's something, I don't know. I, I don't know. So, I, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that fear of death that I used to. And I think that experience with ayahuasca played a role in that. But as, as, I've, as I've used my imagination to think more and more about what this intelligent energy that makes us up and has been around for at least 13.8 billion years since the time of the Big Bang and has been evolving and gaining intelligence that it shares across the network. Like you think mushrooms are the only things that do that? Mushrooms are made out of this energy. Why wouldn't this energy also do that from every corner of the universe? Everything that it ever is and everything that it ever experiences, it records in some kind of a database that's just this organically evolved intelligence like DNA, but it's the DNA behind our DNA. Like, why couldn't that be? Um, I think it's possible. 
So I, I can't come out and say, I believe that, or I think that that is how it is. But if, if you were twisting my arm and making me choose, I'd probably say, yeah, I think it's more likely that it's that than that it's not. I think it's more likely that because Einstein talked about all time exists all the time, that every version of who I am now, who I was as a kid, who I'm going to be five years from now, has always existed in the fabric of space-time. It always has existed in the fabric of space-time. So what does that mean when I die? When I die, we're still thinking of it in terms of linear time. But linear time isn't really what existence is, if you, if you listen to Einstein. <laughs> um, so what does that mean? I, yeah, there's definitely this, this fear of the unknown, because it's unknown, but it's a, it's a cycle and it's a process that there's, there's death and there's rebirth. And this energy that we are isn't ever destroyed. And even, you know, like when you watch these nature documentaries and you see uh, cheetahs that are chasing the gazelles, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm on the side of the gazelle because I, I don't want it to be harmed by the big bad cheetah. It's all life, you know, like we, we do the same, like we can't live without destroying other forms of life around us. We can't, we can't avoid that. We consume other animals. We consume other plants. We, you know, we are consumed by microbes when we when we die and we become the source of life for other things. It's just this, this cycle. Um, so I don't, I don't think that it's anything to be really afraid of. And this, this sense of an identity of Glenn Osland, who I am now, if Einstein's right, that that has always existed in the fabric of space time, then maybe there is some kind of like, <laughs> like organically evolved computer program code that's made out of up quarks and down quarks that act as like ones and zeros in this binary code of existence. And the, the, the program that is me and who I am in this place and time has always existed in the database of the universe. And that's just something that a very, very quantum level of where everything's just potential anyway that expresses these things. I, I don't know. There's just so many possibilities of what it could be that spending a lot of time uh, worrying and being afraid of what it's going to be. I just, I'm not in that place anymore and, and really haven't been for a long time. So yeah, I appreciate that's how that. I feel about death, Bill. You know, I appreciate that. Um, I just want to say kind of as we're wrapping up uh, again, listeners, you can check out uh, bathing with God on iTunes. I, I love the podcast. I loved uh, quads voice, which I, you know, <laughs> is your voice, but altered. Um, and I, I loved the back and forth that these two voices are having. I, I want to ask a favor of you. I wonder if at the end of this episode, if I could play episode one oh, yeah. part of the audio just to tease people. Uh, and hopefully that, that is, they find it as cool as I did and they immediately yeah. go and check out the rest of it. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and episode one is the, the preface and the introduction to the book. And then yeah. episode two is chapter one. Right. Um, right. So we can just so, give yeah. people a tease. Yeah. Um, sure. So if you shoot me that audio, I'll add it in. And, and listeners, okay. I would just suggest if you're if you're in this space, which obviously you are, you're listening to the conversation Glenn and I are having right now. But if you're you know if you're trying to figure out more about who you are and the way the world works and how we humans became what we did and and how we can be better at responding to others uh, tomorrow, um, my suggestion is to check out bathing with God, uh, bathing with God with Glenn Osland. Um, I just I want to say thank you. Like this space is so much fun, and it it did surprise me that you were in this space and I'm just like, it surprised you that I'm in this space. And um, I think when you, when you're curious and you enjoy learning and you want to know what makes yourself tick and what makes others tick, 
it feels very natural to slowly move into these kinds of ideas and talking about these things, being present, ego, you know, shadow work, um, human development, evolution, all that stuff. Uh, It's just, it's been fun to, if I can set my, my ego and my pride aside, your, your bathing with God was fantastic. You were articulating things that I think about, but I couldn't word the way you did. And uh, it was, it was powerful to me to listen to, um, what you've produced so far with this project. And I really hope like bottom of my heart, I shared it with my entire friend group and I shared it a couple times with a couple of really close friends. Like, Hey, don't, don't play around here. You got to listen to this. You got to start right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I think it is the conversation that everybody in the almost awakened space is wrestling with and thinking about. And I just want to say thank you for putting it into audio form and producing it. And I know you've got it in written form too, but for me, it was important to hear those voices yeah. of Quad and you having the conversation. And to, and to make it available to anybody who wants to listen. They don't have to buy the book. They can just listen to the podcast for free. And if they like it and they want to buy the book, cool. You know, I, I, yeah. would, I would love that. But I, I, if there's anything that I would ask a listener to do is to send me an email and let me know that you're there. <laughs> let, me know, let me know that you're there, that you're listening to this. What does it mean to you? Like, who are you? Well, I, I, like, I, I love making those kinds of connections. Those kinds of connections have been so important to me over the eight years that I've done Infants on Thrones that, you know, especially in this, because I, I, I do think that there, there are more people in the world that are interested in these kinds of conversations now than there were probably 10 years ago. But maybe that's just because I'm more interested in it now and I'm more aware that it's going on because Alan Watts, he was the late 60s. And I mean, even... 40s and 50s and, and 60s, what Alan Watts was doing. This, Ram Dass was in that time frame, you know, like we're, we're riding this tidal wave that's been going on for a long time. Um, so if there's people that are out there that are surfing on the same wave, uh, reaching out, saying hi, uh, that's probably the thing that, that I, I like more than, than anything else of doing this and sharing, sharing these ideas. Love it. Love it. Well, we'll wrap up here and I'll, I'll uh, play for the listeners uh, episode one, which is kind of this preface, yeah. this introduction to the book and uh, kind of tease people into to checking it out because I think it really is amazing. And I really appreciate you doing it. And I, I do hope that uh, whether, whether the listening audience grows or not, that you, me, and all the other folks that are talking out loud into microphones about this stuff continue to do this work because I think helping people learn to be present, helping people learn that their ego really isn't this permanent, important piece of them. Yeah. Um, learning what shadow work is and learning how they react and respond to others and beginning to examine and deconstruct my own and their own uh, responses and reactions so that we're healthier people tomorrow. You know, yeah. we, we, could, we could have gotten, and we won't, but we could have gotten into free will and talk about there really isn't. And, and I don't think there is free will. I can only do in this moment what my experience and my DNA has brought me to this moment to do. But if I'm aware that I'm aware, I can learn new tools so that tomorrow I can act differently. I'll still be able only to do what I could have done by what that experience brought me to in that moment, yeah. but I'll now have more tools and resources that allow my behaviors to be different. Yeah. Um, well, anytime, anytime you want to have a conversation like this, Bill, just let me know. Cause I, I'd love to get on and have a conversation with free will about your, any of these other. Yeah, I, I'd love sometime you and I got to sit down and just talk for two hours about ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah. um, I've got a lot of things I, I want to say, and I don't know that I'm going to say them here, um, <laughs> but yeah, but I will tell you grandma, Aya, um, <laughs> yeah. for, for people I know that have done that and, yeah. uh, and you know, I'll leave some things unsaid, but um, 
that is the most spiritual experience I ever, you know, have seen others have, or, or you know, I'll tease it out. Maybe I've had my whole life. Yeah. Um, insane. The things, what I find, again, I don't want to take going any further, but what I find so fascinating in, in the human mind is when we have experiences that a new truth comes out of your own head and nobody around you handed that truth to you. And you pull this new truth out and you're like, oh, I didn't know this before this moment about myself or about the world around me, but I know it now. And to, to learn something without going through the process of learning something to me is magical. Yeah. Um, and I've had those experiences on this side of life. Um, and for those who've done ayahuasca, I think that happens. People can learn new things about themselves and their environment yeah. that they didn't have inside their head prior to that moment. And, and whether it's some kind of a psychedelic or if it's meditation or just some other kind of traumatic like experience in your life, I, I think the experience of going through a faith crisis and leaving a religion like Mormonism is a really important way of breaking out of a cocoon and then realizing, oh, wait, I'm inside of another cocoon. I, that, just like I was told that there's certain truths that I just accept as this is the way that the world is inside of Mormonism. Now I get, now I go, okay, no, it wasn't that way. I'm putting that behind me. Now there's other things like that out in the world. I, like I look at my experience of, of leaving the Mormon church as kind of like training wheels for how to interact with the rest of the world. And this, this ancient idea of Maya and an illusion and you know, that what is going on, what, what is really happening in this world. And that I, I see tremendous value in taking what I learned from exiting Mormonism and going, okay, I want to apply those same tools in just the everyday world and asking the question, what is real? What is true? How do I really know? And um, yeah. yeah, anyway, so I love cool, it. man. Okay. Well, I love it. Thank you for your time tonight, Glenn. And uh, uh, for the listeners, here comes episode one of Glenn Oslin's Bathing with God. And here's where what I'm sharing with you is different than what Bill shared, because I'm going to share with you episode 11. So that's two ones, not just one to 11. Welcome to Bathing with God. Listener Mailbag. Listener Mailbag. Hey, Quad. Hey, what? We have more questions from listeners. Yes, I know. And this one's a really good one. Yes, I know that too. Fantastic. So, since you already know everything about it, why don't you answer it before I even read it to you? Okay. Here is the answer. Listen to this. And in this process is one of the greatest remaining mysteries in science and philosophy. How does consciousness happen? Somehow, within each of our brains, the combined activity of many billions of neurons, each one a tiny biological machine, is generating a conscious experience. And not just any conscious experience, your conscious experience right here and right now. How does this happen? In the story I'm going to tell you, our conscious experiences of the world around us and of ourselves within it are kinds of controlled hallucinations that happen with, through, and because of our living bodies. Our own individual inner universe, our way of being conscious, is just one possible way of being conscious. And even human consciousness generally, it's just a tiny region in a vast space of possible consciousnesses. Our individual selves and worlds are unique to each of us, but they're all grounded in biological mechanisms shared with many other living creatures. So our experiences of the world around us and ourselves within it, well, they're kinds of controlled hallucinations that have been shaped 
Over millions of years of evolution, to keep us alive in worlds full of danger and opportunity, we predict ourselves into existence. Now think about this for a minute. If, if hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. All right, that was pretty cool, Quad. But what was that? That was Anil Seth from one of our favorite TED talks, which we will be talking about a little later. Set to the remix of the Beatles "Because" that was created by French artist Diderda. Great, but what about our listener question? Do you want to share that with the listeners as well? I was already planning on it. This email comes from Jen. Jen says, "Thank you for sharing that last chapter about Dumbo's black feather. I listened to it with my husband. We have both been feeling pretty down with everything going on right now." So we both really related to what you were saying about living in a pit of despair. But why do you say it is all fiction? Why do you say that we are only ever experiencing our own imagination and filling in the gaps of things we don't know? My husband lost his job during COVID. My 64-year-old mother got COVID, and for a few days we really thought she wasn't going to make it. It was horrible. Thank God she did. But that also was not a fiction, and everything going on in the world right now is really taking its toll. It would be nice to think that none of it is real, but it is. Why do you think that it isn't? Thank you for the podcast. I bought your book, and I can't wait to see where this is going. Keep it up, Jen. Sequad, I'm not the only one struggling with this idea of yours that everything is a fiction. You're putting all of that on me, huh? Okay, whatever. So, what do you have to say to Jen about fictions? Tell you what, Jen. How about we walk you through one of our favorite TED talks, delivered in 2017? It's called "Your Brain Hallucinates Reality," and it was delivered by Anil Seth, professor of computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. Let's listen to it together, and I'll stop it from time to time to tie what he's saying to your question. All right, that sounds good. Let's do it. Just over a year ago, for the third time in my life, I ceased to exist. I was having a small operation. My brain was filling with anesthetic. Wait a minute. What does he mean that he ceased to exist? What he means is that he ceased to be conscious. He underwent anesthesia for a surgery, and when you're under anesthesia, it's like you're not even there. All right, I got it. Go ahead. Anesthesia—it's a modern kind of magic. It turns people into objects. And then we hope back again into people. And in this process is one of the greatest remaining mysteries in science and philosophy: how does consciousness happen? How does consciousness happen, Quad? He just said it's a mystery, didn't he? But what makes you think that it happens at all? What makes you think that consciousness isn't the default nature of existence? I I don't know. This seems like a topic maybe to tackle at another time. 
Sounds good to me. Let's go back to the talk. In the story I'm going to tell you, our conscious experiences of the world around us and of ourselves within it are kinds of controlled hallucinations that happen with, through, and because of our living bodies. Hey, Quad. What does he mean when he says that controlled hallucinations happen with, through, and because of their living bodies? He means that your physical body has sensory organs: your eyes, ears, etc., etc. These detect a portion of the world around you, send that data to your brain, and your brain then creates a picture inside of it, like a movie being projected onto a movie screen. He's going to tell us that the movie inside of our brain is like a controlled hallucination. Keep listening. He explains it further. Yeah, I, I will. But how does this help Jen and her husband? You aren't going to tell them that. Losing his job and her mom nearly dying from COVID were controlled hallucinations, are you? You aren't going to tell him that those things are fictions. No, I'm not going to say that they are fictions in the sense that they did not really happen. But I will say that the way they think and feel about what happened to them is a product of their perception of reality, which Anil Seth will be talking about in this TED talk. So perhaps when this is finished, Jen and her husband. Will understand how their experiences can be understood to be both real, objective, true things that happen to them, as well as being controlled hallucinations that happened with, through, and because of their living bodies. Controlled hallucinations that happen with, through, and because of our living bodies. Well, for today, I'd just like to think of consciousness in two different ways. There are experiences of the world around us, full of sights, sounds, and smells. This multi-sensory, panoramic, 3D, fully immersive inner movie, and then there's conscious self, the specific experience of being you or being me, the lead character in this inner movie, and probably the aspect of consciousness we all cling to most tightly. Did you get what he just said there? He talked about the way we experience the world outside of us: sights, sounds, and smells, those things that we are very aware of because of our physical senses. But there is also the world inside of us that we experience through our feelings and our thoughts. Those are the experiences that give us a sense of being an individual self. And in a way, that is a fiction right there. What is a fiction? The sensation of being an individual, separate self. But we are individual, separate selves. Are you really? How do you figure that? Well, take Jen's husband for example. He lost his job. That means that one individual separate self, his boss, told another individual separate self, Jen's husband, that he no longer had need of his individual separate services. How is that a fiction? It is a fiction because you are only focusing on a part of the story and you are ignoring the rest. Wait, what am I ignoring? You are ignoring the undeniable fact that Jen's husband is a human being that is made out of energy. Every atom, every cell, every muscle, every breath he takes—it is all energy. And what's more, it is all a single energy field that is also his boss, and also Jen's mom, and also the coronavirus that infected her. It is all the one energy doing many different things. That is simply a scientific fact. But it doesn't really matter because Jen's husband still lost his job and her mother still almost died from COVID. Why doesn't it matter? Because it doesn't change the fact that those things happened, 
and it certainly doesn't make it a fiction that they happened. Calling it a fiction simply means that they are only focusing on a sliver of the whole truth instead of the entirety of the truth. It doesn't mean that that sliver isn't real. Fiction means that you are ignoring the bigger picture. And how would it help them to focus on the bigger picture? Well, that's really up to them. But what about you? Would you feel less threatened or afraid of life if you realized that you are made up of eternal, indestructible energy that is quite naturally, quite effortlessly doing everything that you see around you, including you and all of the bodily processes that are required to keep you alive? And all you really need to do is eat and sleep and experience what you experience. Yeah, that sounds like an oversimplification that actually makes me feel a little nervous. Interesting. I wonder if that's because your brain is a prediction engine, and when you can't predict a future that is completely safe, you start feeling a little nervous. My brain is a prediction engine? Yes. Let's go back to Dr. Seth for this one. Let's start with experiences of the world around us and with the important idea of the brain as a prediction engine. Now, imagine being a brain. You're locked inside a bony skull trying to figure what's out there in the world. There's no light inside the skull, there's no sound either. All you've got to go on are streams of electrical impulses which are only indirectly related to things in the world, whatever they may be. So perception, figuring out what's there, has to be a process of informed guesswork in which the brain combines these sensory signals with its prior expectations or beliefs about the way the world is to form its best guess of what caused those signals. The brain doesn't hear sound or see light. What we perceive is its best guess of what's out there in the world. Wait a minute. Did he just say that our brain is always making guesses about what is out there in the world, but it's based on incomplete data? Yes. But that incomplete data is also compared to every similar experience you have ever had and every conclusion you have ever reached or believe that you hold about what those experiences mean to you. But yes, it is electrical impulses being compared to other electrical impulses in a body that is made of energy in a world that is also made of energy. You make it sound like we're living in an electronic simulation. Maybe that is simply how the energy of life has evolved. You don't normally think of yourself as a series of electronic binary codes that are interacting with and trying to make sense of other electronic binary codes. And most people don't really stop to think about how confirmation bias truly shapes their experience of the world. What you expect to see and hear shapes what you actually see and hear. Listen to this next part and see if that makes sense. Here's one more example which shows just how quickly the brain can use new predictions to change what we consciously experience. Have a listen to this. Sounded strange, right? Have a listen again and see if you can get anything. Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. Which I do. Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. Yeah? So you can now hear words there. Once more for luck. Okay, so what's going on here is, is the, the remarkable thing is the sensory information coming into the brain hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that sensory information, and that changes 
what she consciously hears. Now, all this puts the brain basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world; we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. We don't just passively don't just perceive the world; we, the world, we actively generate it. This is worth repeating. We don't just passively receive the world; we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out. As from the outside in. Does this help you understand why ten people can witness the same event from ten different perspectives, and each one comes away with ten different versions of what they all experienced? Which one of them is true? Which one of them is false? Aren't they all true? Aren't they all fictions? Aren't they all just individual slivers of the entire whole truth? Now think about this for a minute. If if hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. <laughs> Now I'm going to tell you that your experience of being a self, the specific experience of being you, is also a controlled hallucination generated by the brain. Now this, you know, this there is more to this TED talk, and there will be more episodes of this podcast. So let's stop it here to wrap this up for today. How do you feel about what he has said about reality? What did he say about reality? He said that reality is the word we use to describe a commonly shared hallucination. Yeah, I don't know. What about objective reality? What about the things that actually exist, whether I believe that they exist or not? You mean like the fact that you are the same energy field that is everyone and everything else, whether that is something that you believe and weave into your confirmation bias of the world or not? Now I think you're just being snarky. Maybe you're right, but I hope this answered Jen's question. Hmm, good point. Can you maybe sum it up for her here, just to avoid any potential confusion? She wants to know why you called these things that really happened to her a fiction. Can you wrap this up in a neat and tidy bow? I call them fiction because there is more going on than the tiny sliver of reality that you were able to experience, predict, and perceive. These things really happened, of course. There are real consequences as a result of them happening. Fiction does not mean that it is not real. But the most valuable thing I can tell you is that you could, if you wanted, tell yourself another fiction that is also based on facts that are real but still does not convey the complete story. For example, you could recognize yourself as the one energy that is interacting with other versions of the one energy. And you could recognize that this one energy does not and cannot destroy itself or threaten itself in any way. It simply changes its form. You, being very attached to the form of that one energy that you experience as you right now, 
fear anything that threatens that identity. But how do you know that the one energy that is in every cell of your body, in every thought, in every action, in everything that is both inside of and outside of you, how do you know that this one energy does not record in some kind of advanced biologically evolved database every part of the experience of you that you have ever experienced? It's all electronic signals, isn't it? All electronic signals made out of indestructible eternal energy? How do you know that this one energy does not exist outside of space and time, as well as inside of it? How do you know that the electronically stored bits of memory of you will not exist forever, have not already existed forever, and that this one energy could run the program of your existence anytime and in any number of contexts as it wanted. How do you know that the things that you fear are real threats to your existence? Can you see that the way you hallucinate reality and create stories about what it means is based on variables that you really have no knowledge of? Why choose the fiction that you currently choose? Why not choose another fiction that could take away some of the fear you experience as a living brain that is a prediction engine that can never quite predict what it needs to predict in order to feel completely secure? You call that wrapping it up with a neat and tidy bow? No. I call it an invitation to use your imagination to stretch the limits of your current understanding. Fair enough. And I also call it fun. And I hope that you do too, Jen, and your husband. Thank you for writing in. Thank you for listening to Bathing with God. If you like what you just heard and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. And if you really, really like what you just heard, share it with someone you love and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. You can also like our Facebook page and subscribe to the Bathing with God YouTube channel. And if you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can email me, Glenn Osland, at bathingwithgod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And probably so would Quad. Oh yeah, bring it. Thanks again for listening to Bathing with God. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.